Zimbra. This is... You talking talking heads? Am I talking head? The, the comprehensive and encyclopedia compendium of all things talking heads. This is good rock and roll. Um, music. Welcome to the show. There it goes. <laughs> Welcome there it to the show. There it was. Uh, welcome to you talking, talking heads to my talking head. Um, the comprehensive and encyclopedia compendium of all things talking heads. This is good rock and roll music. And we have a great show for you today. Uh, we are going to be talking about the seminal, not only album. Hey, we're used to talking about albums on this show. That's our bread and butter. That's, that's our bread and our butter. Records are our bread and CDs are our butter. (laughs) oh god but we are also talking about uh a film by the same name and in fact it is the capturing of a concert both of these projects is there a worse way to say this both of these projects are called stop making sense 1984 stop making sense we'll be talking about the record we'll be talking about the movie but guess what we also have a special guest on this show we will be talking two talking heads to his talking head that's right we have a member of talking heads on the actual show what that's right he's a member of the talking heads he's a member of name his other bands uh well i mean Little band, uh, four fellas from Liverpool. I can't quite place them. What are they Lovable lads from Liverpool, that is. The Beatles. The Beatles. The Beatles. Thank you very yeah, much. And then, uh, sentimental favorite of mine, the, uh, the Traveling Wilburys, which, of course, is a uh, terrific, terrific band and also part of some great comedy bits of mine (laughs) that's right we've talked about those on previous shows and also producer of uh wonderful records like uh the violent femmes and crash chest dummies and the verve pipe and live uh, a lot of 90s hits uh a prolific producer and then a solo artist himself got sued for his song uh my sweet lord i believe to the yep. tune of several million pounds. That's right. right. Because it was in uh, Great Britain. It was in the, the greatest of Britons. That's right. George Harrison is with us. Amazing to have him on the show. We will be talking to his talking head about uh, Stop Making Sense. And what a treat that's going to be. Very excited about that, Adam. Are you, are you excited? Before I introduce you, I want to gauge your level of excitement. I'm very excited. I can't wait to talk to him about uh, my all my favorite Wilburys tunes. It's going to be amazing. Um, Traveling Wilburys. I'm glad I paused your introduction to hear that little tidbit from you, uh, but let us Thank tarry you. no further and commence with introducing the man across from me. And when I say across from me, I mean across town because he is in his 
very dimly lit closet uh, with all of his favorite sweaters and probably some of the sweaters that he doesn't like that much. I'm not sure uh, uh, if any of those are sparking joy for you right now. I can pull out my least favorite ones during the, the program today. <laughs> That'll be amazing. Like. Yeah. Now, I would, I'm not very good at describing clothes, by the way. Mm-hmm. I, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, in every episode of Comedy Bang Bang, the television show, it was a uh, uh, our our yeah, main the title guest. Of the, episodes, the title right? of the episode was the main guest and what they were wearing during the show. And I was so bad at it, I eventually had to uh, pass it off to uh, our uh, someone in the wardrobe department uh, who ended up working with me as a producer on the Between Two Ferns movie, Corinne. Uh, and she she basically had to do it each time because I, I, I can look at clothes and not be able to describe them at all. I don't know whether hmm. you have that skill, Adam. I do, and I wouldn't mind doing it today. And uh, I wouldn't mind describing some of my clothes uh, on the program uh, today. How would you uh, describe what you're wearing currently? Right now, I am wearing a pair of uh, pair of uh, cutoff army shorts, not cargo shorts. Army shorts. It was a pair of what's the army diff? pants? Well, cargo shorts have all kinds of pockets all over them. But are we, army people people in the army don't use pockets? They use pockets, uh, but they they use pockets in a variety of ways. And the way I'm using them right now is one of the variety of ways that the army uh, uses pockets. Uh, And sorry, is this an episode of how do you use your pockets? I think it might be. Hey, everyone. Welcome to How Do You Use Your Pockets? This is Scott. Uh, and this is Scott. Do you have to get that? No, that was <laughs> what was that? that was Siri thinking I was addressing him. <laughs> yeah. I, why, I just why can't Siri it. be a woman? You know what I, I mean? Just why changed it to British male, and it's it's freaked me out a couple. Times. So you're not comfortable with American women, is that right? You don't you don't like them uh, getting all up in your business? Yeah, I, I really don't want them to boss me around. Uh, but I'm I'm finding that I'm far more uncomfortable with a British man bossing me around. <laughs> what did you say? I mean, you would make a terrible Batman in that respect. But what You're did you right. say that, that triggered uh, uh, Master Siri? Something about, is this an episode of How Do You Use Your Pockets? No, nope. yeah, didn't do it this time. Yeah, didn't do it this time. Oh, I wonder, you must have said... Something that sounds like Siri, and then how do you use your pockets? And Siri thought the question was, how do you use your pocket? Hey, ask Siri, how do you use your pockets and see what... Because this is part of the show, by the sure. way. Hey, Siri, how do you use your pockets? Okay, I found this on the web for how do you use your pockets. Check yeah. it out. All right. uh, Siri, you know, anytime Siri doesn't it's know an anything, and just, yeah, just Googles. No thanks, Siri. Yeah, I no, have go- thank you. I'd rather ask Jeeves, another British fellow. Yeah. Jeeves is actually quite knowledgeable. Yeah, you've essentially though just turned your computer into ask Jeeves. <laughs> like you've regressed I know. <laughs> backwards. I think I'm going to have to uh change it maybe to another language. Oh, very good. Um so anyway, uh the pockets on these uh pants now shorts uh are really functional. They're great because they're really big, but they are not cargo pockets. What I, I I'm still straining to differentiate between 
Is it the size of, of, of cargo pockets? Is it where they're located on the short? What What is a cargo pocket yeah. and what is a an army pocket? And what's well, the difference between them? Here's the thing. I'm The category may be slightly off. I call them army pants slash army shorts. They're actually camp pants or camp shorts, which is sort of a traditional- Is that short for Camp Pendleton or- uh, Just shut up for a second. They they seems start, like you had plenty of time to talk, but go ahead. Sort of a traditional army pant, and it's a sort of an army green. And the and the pocket is sewn on the outside of the pant. You know that kind of older uh, army pant style. Hold on, someone's at the door. <clears throat> Hello, this is the mayor of podcasts. This one has been canceled for being too boring. What? Goodbye. What? <laughs> Oh my God, that's never happened to me during a show before. I mean, cancel for being too boring. I mean, they don't I've even been on get a way more boring. Of, they don't. Uh, yeah, podcast. I know you have. <laughs> Not in any of mine, though. <laughs> I think I was directly referring to some of the ones I've been on with you. Uh, okay, they don't even get a theme song to say goodbye. That it just an abrupt cancel ended in the middle of a show. I wish more TV shows would be canceled in the middle of the show where just the network president comes on in the middle and goes, Says, shut it down. I'm sorry. This is just too much. <laughs> You're looking like a, um, I was going to say a young Jarvis Cocker, but I'm just going to say Jarvis Cocker instead. You're looking dead on uh, at his age. My <laughs> my my hair is uh, long and so it's it goes in my face and uh i had to get something but also your out of my your face. your eyeglasses that you're wearing are big like the ones he has now and they're on a uh uh is that a string or a chain i keep them i keep it on a uh a leather strap and so when i'm done with them Sexy. all you have to do is let them go and they hang around your uh your neck uh-huh when and w- when you're done with them you can tie up naomi with them yeah or i can just throw them in the garbage <laughs> sure how, how many leather straps do you go through a day um, for 500. <laughs> Understand. So you basically kill a cow, what, a week? Yeah. Well, I make my own leather straps and yeah. I use them for uh, each time I take on or take off my, put on or take off my glasses. I use a, a uh, leather strap that I consider disposable. Sure. And, and do you pick it up using tweezers? I mean, you can't be too careful these days. What with COVID? I yeah I have those arm extenders that you use at Costco mm. to grab things off of high shelves. I only handle my uh, my homemade leather straps using the arm extenders. So you have uh, an entire herd of cattle out in the backyard. In the backyard, uh, and I have to murder one with my hands every day oh. in order to to uh make uh leather straps i and i make them in the in a swimming in my neighbor's swimming pool so you actually think it's murder i i always kind of viewed killing cows for meat and for leather goods as like you know at best sort of uh, uh manslaughter yeah no i i consider it stone cold murder it's premeditated so i guess you're right yeah murder one maybe 100 percent. it's aggressive and cruel uh and i'm a vegetarian i do not use leather in any other circumstance other than uh, taking on and, and uh, uh, putting on and taking off my glasses. Thank but, you. But, you, but you murder a cow a week to do that. Uh, yeah. One, two cows uh, every week. Um, depends if there's a holiday or not. Uh, yeah. What happens on holidays? Do you take your glasses on and off a lot more or? On holidays, I do it uh, twice as much. I take my glasses on and off twice as much because there's just more 
always more to look at uh, on a holiday just because you have more time and you can. The children's smiling faces. Children's smiling faces. Um, the, The world around you is really interesting. So there are more and more reasons to take on. Uh, and to put on and take off your glasses. You ever tell one of your kids like, hey, is the he- mayor of podcasts going to make an entrance here? At, I don't see him. I, I, I'm looking at my security camera. I don't, yeah, I've seen neither speaking of leather hide nor hair of him. Great. <laughs> so I think we're good for a little bit more time. Yeah, let's this. keep going. Sure. Um, but yes, you you uh, uh, look like Jarvis Cocker is what I wanted to say, and uh, good for you. You're getting ready to uh, film a role, and uh, you're you're doing what those method actors do. You're changing your appearance so that when we look at you, we don't go like, "Oh, hey, there's that dork again." That's right. You'll go, "Hey, that dork's hair is longer." <laughs> Got uh, sort of a beard. Is it a goat or is it a beard? I can't quite tell. Lean more towards the camera. I wasn't being serious. I don't care. <laughs> I do what I'm told. <laughs> you are a nice podcast partner in that respect. Um, how about you? What's going on with Scott's look these days? Uh, boy, I tell you, it's October and uh, oh, the, uh, the leaves are falling, my friend. Is it Rocktober already? It certainly is. And boy, oh God, uh, right. if you look up at the sky, you, you'll be like, are those orange snowflakes? Ah, 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 those leaves are coming off those trees, baby. Bam, bam, bam. I got to say, it's one of my four favorite seasons of the year. It truly is. Fall. I love gorgeous. Fall, that's number one, probably with a bullet. Number two is autumn. I don't like it quite as much. I I love them both. Number three is spring in Australia. What happens in Australia during the springtime? That you oh, like the leaves are falling. Oh, the pumpkins are in season. Oh, it's just I love beautiful that. I love there. Um, and then number four, I would say probably uh, summer of 1975. Oh, yeah. that No, that was a really good one because – I, everyone says 1770 or 1976 was the bicentennial. Bicentennial, yeah. I disagree. I yeah. disagree. It was. It, it's. It's like when people say, "Oh, the new millennium has started when it turns 2000." Yeah. No, the bicentennial was on 1975, and that is a fact. Because everyone knows that we count the beginning of our country uh, by when the founding fathers first thought of. When they first started talking about it, when they first started going like, hey, should we start a country? Yeah. And they start like they they drank ale, you know. Oh, Samuel Adams was in the mix, of course. He he was cooking it up in the back room and they were just all white and horrible and old. uh, I mean, old, old for old for them and owned slaves. Were they people in their what would you say? Well, I'm they sure all okay. Well so when you, but they're all yeah. like in their thirties, but they look like they're seventy. Yeah, when you take a look at them, first of all, they're wearing those wigs that were popular in uh, uh, back then. Huge and trend. I remember Bob Odenkirk when we were working on Mister Show. He had a sketch that he was trying to make happen for a long time. That was about the guy, the last guy to ever wear a wig as part of a fashion choice. And he he was like 10 years later when they were out of fashion and people kept going like, hey, man, you don't need to wear that wig. Yeah. Why are you still wearing that? (laughs) So they're all wearing like essentially these old man wigs. But let's look. Which guy do you want me to look up? Uh, John Hancock himself or? 
Let's start with uh, the original, uh, the Big Ben, Big Ben Franklin. Oh, Benny F. Let's see how old he was in 1775. Okay, 1775, Benjamin Franklin. He was born in 1785. He wasn't even born yet. No, no, no. I'm sorry. He was in he office. He died then. in 1785, right? Where's his, where's his deets? Oh, okay, 1706. Okay, so in 1775, yeah, he's, oh. he's 69, buddy. That dude lived a long time for uh, for such for a... Era. Look at this picture of him. Yeah. Big old stomach. Yeah. Snarling at the camera. I think that's Ooh. a hot photo. He, you know who he looks like? Old sourpuss. Oh, boy. Yeah, <laughs> Doesn't he? he? had to bring him oh! up. Oh! Look at the way he's... Okay, everyone go to his Wikipedia page. Right now, go. <laughs> Excuse me. Making me cough how sickening this photo is. <laughs> so he's, he's t- uh, first of all, I think it's a selfie. And he's, he's taking this These selfie These guys of all did selfies, all of them. They all painted their own selfies. It's incredible. And he's just like, he's glaring at the camera like, uh, I, I did it again, didn't I? And th- the other thing is, is he's 82 during this, uh, the time of this painting, and they're making him look like he's forty. Would you agree? Yeah, that's like a forty-year-old. Uh, that's a forty-year-old. Yeah, I mean, come on, painter, whoever did that. Oh, Joseph Duplessis. No, thank you. But uh, uh, the other thing is, is like, smile, dude, or like at least fix the wrinkles on your goddamn vest. I don't know. I don't know why I'm so upset. It's about like this. he's hunched over to in- accentuate his belly. It's like he's <laughs> flaunting it. <laughs> Let's look up John Hancock and see what uh, his deal is. Okay, he was born in 37, so in 75, he'd be like 38. All right. That's what we're talking about. But look at his He his looks painting. like Ron Livingston in this picture. <laughs> he really, in office space. Yeah. <laughs> so he's got that terrible gray wig. Dude is, you know, 38 years old. he's missing half old. of his face. He looks like the Phantom of the Opera on his Wikipedia page. Look, is this an episode of Roasting the Forefathers? I believe it is. Hey everyone, welcome to Roasting the Forefathers. This is Scott. And this is Scott. And we are truly, truly roasting and toasting. <laughs> get out your marshmallows. Get out those Hershey squares, uh, those graham it. crackers. We're roasting these forefathers. Um, who else do you? Uh, who else do we have? George uh, George Washington. Oh yeah, let's roast him up. Okay, put him on let's spigot. Put him on the, put him on the big screen. All right, everyone. Uh, if you're following along, go to his Wikipedia page. Oh, look at this guy. Uh, I cannot mad. tell a lie. You ugly. <laughs> I can't tell a lie. I can smell your wooden teeth from here. <laughs> <laughs> hey, why don't you get back to chopping down the cherry tree uh, while the rest of us are uh, chopping down the cherries of the virgins that we're having sex with? Because yeah. like you're a you're a virgin. I lo- I lost the plot on that. Uh, one. Totally. No, that was a good one. Hey, uh, can I borrow your jacket? Just kidding. It sucks. <laughs> um, I, I there's not much more no, raw material with Georgia. Yeah. yeah okay. Else. What do you got? Uh, who else is a forefather? Oh man, um, uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton. Here we go, baby. Alexander Hamilton. Oh man, I wish Lynn were. Is. I wish. I wish I could text Lynn right now and get him. Get him on the horn. Get him oh, on the zoom. Get him. He's got to be a part of the. Roast oh, I bet he would him. love to roast the forefathers. Oh, is there any Hamilton lyric that roasts Hamilton? 
yeah. Alexander Hamilton. I'm Alexander Hunter Hunter Hamilton. Um, let's see. Uh, he looks pretty good. He does look. He does look. He's good. pretty handsome. Um, uh, let's see what we got here. Uh, hmm. I don't know. Uh, I bet w- when he's he, smiling, he's he yeah, looks. He looks when like he takes a dump, on. he's uh, he's like happy. He's in the boom where it happened. I don't know. Um, I don't know. It's kind of hard. What, what, what this, do we this, got? This show's too hard. Hmm. He's great. I love him, and he. I, he it looks doesn't wonderful. make me feel good either. Like I, I don't bring the way he treated uh, uh, people of color. I'll, I'll just say that much. Can yeah. we roast him on that? Let's roast him on I that. I guess so. Yeah. Hey, you, uh, uh, you were the eighth senior officer of the United States Army. Um, that's cool. Yeah, I mean that's actually pretty impressive. It's pretty impressive. I don't know. I don't doing this show is kind of making me feel bad. I don't like tearing people down in order to build myself up, you know. Yeah. All right. Well, uh let's just uh, we can continue it on the next uh, episode. We'll have a ton of we have lots of episodes in the future of this particular show. I know, but I I don't know if I want to keep doing it. Yeah. No, I get what you're saying. I wish the mayor of podcasting would come in here and cancel us. Is there a way to invite him, or is it just a? I could text him. Really... Yeah, could you? Yeah, here we go. Hold on, hold on. Let me text. Oops, I accidentally sent it to Mayor McCheese. No, oh, no. Now he's gonna come over. Fuck. He's gonna bring some nice, delicious double hamburgers, though. Yeah, some quarter pounders with cheese. What's this YouTube link that uh, Kevin sent over? What do we got here? Oh, uh, Kevin sent over a YouTube link. Hold on, let me stop sharing my screen and it's called. Take... <laughs> Did you see the name of the video? No. Okay. <laughs> oh, by the way, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Now I have to share my screen. Okay. The name of this video, Kevin just sent us a a video, and it's Cowboy Junkies Southern Rain parentheses. Yeah, edition. Oh, I know what this is. Here, let me share the screen so we all can hear it. Okay, I know what this is. This is a few episodes back. Um, You told the story about how you went to go see the Dennis Miller show, Cha-Cha. Yeah, and this is pre-HBO show. This is his syndicated talk show. This is the one before he beat us for Emmys. He didn't beat me specifically. He beat, he beat Mr. Mr. Show for He Emmys. beat Mr. Show the year before oh, I was nominated. Boy. Chris Rock beat us uh, the one year I was nominated for Mr. Show. Um, but this this was his, yeah, it was on KTLA here, was, was it not? Syndicated God, show. I, yeah, it was, was it on in the afternoon? or was No, it, it was night. It was, it was 11 night. o'clock. It was like. Yeah, it was like 11 o'clock, KTLA. Yeah. Um, he had a talk show and he would have musical guests on and Adam. Andy went, Summers was his band leader. Yeah. From the, uh, the from uh, ACAB, yeah, yeah, um, and uh, yeah, and uh, Adam went to go see the Cowboy Junkies play. Was that the only time you went to see this show, the Dennis Miller show? Yeah, or any other show. I don't care. Any other show? I don't. Whatever. <laughs> okay. If you're not engaged enough to know what I'm talking well, you about, can retract the question if you want. Yeah, I'll retract it. Anyway, so uh, Adam went to- It's the only time I went to the Dennis Miller show. Thank you. Keep going Was that too fucking- Well, you went once. Yeah. You're saying like, I didn't keep going back. Like I went to see Arsenio Hall once too. 
Oh, hell yeah. I think we talked about that. You weren't in the dog pound, though. No, but I did do the dog pound. That's the thing. He only wants the people in the dog pound to do it, but it's too tempting. Yeah, I mean, what, the, what are the rest of us supposed to do? Just keep our hands at our sides? No. Did he, did he come out and admonish the rest of you? Yeah. Uh, once they cut to commercial, he came over to me and there were like three other dudes. And uh, he said, I'm going to kick you out of here. <laughs> I'm going to kick you and Jay Leno's ass. Yeah. <laughs> remember remember that entertainment weekly? <laughs> that was scandalous when it happened. And of oh, course, man. it did not come true. Um, but Adam went to go see Cowboy Junkies, and uh, we talked about it on a previous show. Well, I went to go see the Dennis Miller show. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I think can, I feel like you think Dennis I, Miller was a guest on the Cowboy Junkies television show. No, I, no, but I'm saying you didn't. Did you truly go to see it because it was the Dennis Miller show? Yeah, or did you, I did not go because of the Cowboy Junkies. Oh, okay. I was I was mistaken about that. No. I thought you went because you were a Cowboy Junkies fan. I mean, I was, but it's Oh, like, my God! No, but it's like a couple years after they were like... Did uh, Sweet Jane... Uh, yeah, this is like 92 and... They're past their song. they're past their, their prime. Okay, I... They're, they're so much like they're in the REM vein. So I kind yeah, of sure. So you figure I assumed was. that you were just like, hey, cow- uh, you know, checking out the Dennis Miller lineups going, ooh, Cowboy Junkies. Let me go to that one. Yeah. Um, but instead, you went to, uh, even worse. Uh, in <laughs> retrospect, you went to go see Dennis Miller. <laughs> and yeah. uh, uh, but during the Cowboy Junkies song, uh, they did sort of a fake finish where Adam thought the song was over and he shouted out. Yeah. And um, we asked for your remixes um, for any time there was any kind of pause in the song, if we could hear Adam saying, yeah. <laughs> so so someone oh, sent us this. Is? Someone did this? Yes, yeah, someone sent oh, us yeah. this. Uh, this comes to us from JS? Really? Can that be right? Uh, that's the only credit we have. But uh, uh, Kevin, if you can find a better credit. But uh, let's hear a little bit of this. This is Cowboy Junkies Southern Rain, yeah, edition. I believe there was another one, Kevin, if you could find that one, that had had it less often, but your yeah was a little uh, a better of a sample. I don't know if uh, we have that one, Kevin, but... Uh, that was pretty funny. That was pretty funny. Um, Kevin has sent something in the chat. Oh, he's got it, baby. Let's hear this. This is from another enterprising young listener. Um, Here we go. Kyle James 
Hear the uh, let's hear the guitar solo. Gonna cut to the guitar solo. Oh, yeah, hold on. She just finished talking about that way. Yeah, I would, I would. <laughs> Actually, love it if someone did that during a performance. Like, would would an usher come by and tell you to shut up, or like just going, "Yeah"? I think it would be so funny. I also think it would be really funny if you played this on a talk show. This is another episode of Great Talk Show Bits. But if you played this on a talk show and talked about it, and then there was an actual band playing, and you did it during that band, I think that would be like some a band with a great sense of humor, like Portugal the Man or something like that. It would be cool to like get them in on it. Oh, that would be very funny. Oh my god! Should that was we good hear shit. the actual one? The actual no. Have we done that on the show? Yeah. Preview. Okay, never mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Oh my god, so funny. Um all right, we need to take a break. Wait, did we uh pull out of the uh forefathers show or the, is this still Oh that? my gosh, I don't know. Let's see. Did we pull out? Kevin, any idea we if we pulled we out? Did. We, we did. did. Oh, thank God we pulled out. Oh man. It's gonna to have to go to the store for to get to get a remedy for that. I don't get it. <laughs> no one's ever, uh, Adam. I made you've that never joke before, Adam. You've never been to a Costco at uh, one in the morning. <laughs> Costco? And, do you buy it in bulk <laughs> or a food for less? <laughs> well, you have to uh, uh, with my situation. Um, I have a very large you penis. Is what I'm trying to penises. say. <laughs> All right, look, we need to take a break. This is exciting. We're going to be talking about Stop Making Sense. We also have the the legend, George Harrison, is with us. That is incredible. Very Member exciting. of Talking Heads. We're going to come right back. We'll be talking about Stop Making Sense on You Talking, Talking Heads. <laughs> to my Talking Head, we'll be right back. Welcome back. You talking talking heads to my talking head. Very excited about today's episode. We're talking about Stop Making Sense, the both the album and the film. And we have uh, George Harrison is going to be our special guest talking about Stop Making Sense uh, coming up. But uh, before we get to that, <clears throat> excuse me. I think I was yelling in our last segment and uh, got a little bit of a, a throat tickle in there. Huh, that's interesting. <laughs> Sorry. Um, before we get to, to uh, talking to George Harrison, why don't we talk about uh, the details of Stop Making Sense? What do you say, Adam? That would be great. I would love that. Let me go backwards uh, here and uh, talk about exactly when it came out. September of 1980. 
four. Adam, is this the first Talking Heads record that you ever bought? I guess so. I think it was more like there were there was a couple copies around because my brother was into it, and I think my parents may have had it, or maybe I did. Maybe I got the tape because I I remember just listening to it constantly. Yep, and yep. every felt like everyone in the family was like this. Feels like one of those albums that everyone was into like Graceland or something. This truly, for America, this truly felt like one of those albums that Adam's entire family was into. You know, that genre. <laughs> um, I remember this album very clearly. This was the first Talking Heads album that I ever listened to. My friend uh, from high school, John, had it. And we, uh, this was my first year in high school. It came out right when I started high school. And... Uh, I remember it very clearly. We <clears throat> used to... I was still in elementary school. Sure. Sure you were. We used to... We were in drama together, high school drama. And uh, I, I believe we were in the show Carousel around this time. Mm -hmm. And uh, where I played the star maker. The guy who... Uh, essentially, he was a god type, but they made him uh, folksy. And <laughs> he was hanging up stars when uh, Billy gets to heaven. What was his name? Billy Bathgate? No. Billy Batson? No, that's Shazam. Billy Bathgate? Uh, yeah. Do you know Billy Bathgate? The Dustin Hoffman movie? Yeah, the g gangster. Yeah. Uh, his name was Billy... Porter? B b b b b not Billy Porter. That's that dude who sang... Uh, that uh, uh, kick-ass version of, what was it, uh, What's Going On? Billy Bigelow! Billy Bigelow. Billy Bigelow. Um, in any case, so so John and I were both in this show, and we would hang out um, in the parking lot uh, after school, either either after drama or waiting for drama to start. We, we would hang out in his—he had a Firebird. He had a Trans Am Firebird. Okay. And— um, we would hang out listening to albums in his car. And I just have a very, very vivid memory of listening to this record in the Cypress High School parking lot, super loud, and just memorizing all of these songs and uh, uh, going like, oh my God, I got to see this movie. This is a movie? Okay, I got to see this movie somehow. Okay. <laughs> and 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 you, I have to kill, say your no. your, your co-hosting style is like essentially waiting for me to finish talking and then adding a word. Is that is does that encapsulate? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, I guess the only question I could ask at that point of the story would be, so did you see the movie or or did you not see the movie? Because I personally did not see the movie till way later because for whatever reason, I think if you're in, I, I was just at the age where going to a concert movie felt like I, I wasn't sure what that was. Like I was 11 or 12. I don't know if I was going to see. Wait, but didn't you go to the Us Festival and all that kind of, at, at 11 and 12? Yeah, like even younger, but that was like with my parents because my stepmom had a job to do there and but this was an album the whole family loved they didn't take you to the movie yeah i think i think what i'm thinking of is the couple of years after this came out and it was huge everywhere um but as far as the movie goes i didn't see it till it came out on vhs like 
Really? Two years later or something. Yeah. Oh, okay. No, I I saw the movie, um, but but way after, like it, the, the movie percolated for such a long time. They basically yeah. put it into just a few theaters around the country and then let it but play. But it would play for like a year. A year or two, uh, sort of like, uh, uh, you know, a, a cult film in a way that, mm-hmm. you know, you, you you could come back to and and rewatch several times over the course of the year. Not, these days, movies, they come out in about like they're gone in two weeks for the most part, unless they're huge hits. Um, and if it were to come out now, that's probably what would happen. Although if it were to come out now, maybe uh, no one would go see it because, uh, you know, theaters aren't open. But uh, no, I saw it. I saw it. I saw it a year later in Hermosa Beach. We had to drive all the way up from uh, Orange County to Hermosa Beach because it was the only place playing. And the only time I had ever spent in Hermosa Beach, I remember I, I took a, a an overnight church trip to Hermosa Beach to I don't someone at our church had a beach house or something or had access to a beach house. So our entire like junior high. Uh, a church group came up and spent an overnight trip where I remember like hanging out on the roof of this beach house. And then the only other weird thing I remember about it is I went to the local store and they had uh, a copy of Alpha Flight 12, the comic book there. And I was I was very excited because uh, it was an oversized issue and it and it said someone was going to die in the in the in the issue and so I took it. I'm on this church trip and I took it back and just so, solo silently read it alone. Uh, and, uh, Guardian died. Spoiler alert, but Guardian dies in Alpha Flight 12. In any case, so that was my only experience with Hermosa Beach, so it was, what Real an ex- social butterfly you What were. an experience coming back to the town where I had bought Alpha Flight 12 to watch a movie, not three years later. Um, but yeah, I, I think, uh, my friend John and I were maybe one of five people in the audience, uh, but this was like movie. a year after it came out. Yeah, it was like 1986. Definitely, we. I was a sophomore at this point, and it was like, okay, enough fucking around. We got to see this movie. Hey, it's playing. It's going to be a bit of a trip. But uh, you know, pack a bag, put on a pot of coffee, get some snacks. Sure, but we did it, and uh, I, I got to tell you, the race to get home in time for curfew after that movie—that's <laughs> another story. Talk about Fast and Furious. <laughs> Talk like about the uh, Diesel uh, uh, franchise. Fast Times at Cypress High uh, <laughs> is a little more very like. Um, but yeah, the the movie. I feel like we're dipping into I love films here. I believe we are. everyone this is i love films welcome to it and this is scott and this is scott welcome <laughs> to it new everyone intro. new intro for this episode <laughs> welcome to it and we're talking about great films here uh we're talking but, about uh, sorry scott i'm sorry to jump in we're talking about great films we are not what talking about no no i'm 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 just joining in your reverie of what we do here which is we talk about great Films. That's right. So okay. if you want to come to us and say like, hey, why don't you cover uh, a Transformers Rise of the f- Stupid Bumblebee? Yeah. yeah. Uh, look. Wrong yeah. show. Okay. Wrong show. Yeah, we've seen it. Yes, we love it. Is it my favorite film of that year? Absolutely. Probably. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's great. It, it, was I able to stay awake during it? Unlike most of the shit that we cover on this show? Yeah, 
This is fucking explosions, dude. Yeah, you, I did as like an amphetamine. Yeah, I dare you to try to sleep through Transformers: Rise of the Bumblebee. Love it. But uh, instead, we're covering shit like Apocalypse Now. Uh, too long, as far as I'm concerned. Godfather, yeah, yeah. three hours. Godfather 2, three and a half hours. Yeah. They could easily cut those down to like 10, 15 minutes. Totally. Nothing happens in them. No. It's a bunch of people no. glaring at each other. No. Ah, shut the door, Kay. Shut the door. Grab the cannoli and shove it up my butt, like stuff like that. And I'm like, oh, God, can you please can can a can an alien robot please come and decimate every single one of these characters? But just just scorch everything. Turn scorched earth ashes. Kill me while you're at it, please, because I don't want to spend another fucking second watching this terrible, terrible Ah, film. Can't take it. Film, film, film. You know what? Just let it all burn. Let all of society burn, as far as I'm concerned. You know, let burn it all down at this at this point. Yeah, you know I mean, what I mean? Why not? Right? Why not? What 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 good is it? You know, follow point- the Roman Empire. It's pointless. It's all fucking pointless. It's it's over. All right. Next week we're talking about Raging Bull. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye. That was an interesting episode. That was interesting. Yeah, as, as far as the the canon of I Love Films goes, that was uh, it seemed like a turning point for them. You know what I was expecting with that episode? I thought they were going to be talking about Stop Making Sense, the film. Yeah. But they took a, a, a different route. Yeah, a little detour. And sometimes that can work out. Yeah, I mean... Sure. Um, you know, just today I was driving somewhere and uh, tried to get on that. Uh, have, hey, Adam, you ever tried to get on the the freeway? Mm-hmm. You know what you use? One of those. Uh, what do you use? An on ramp. Yeah. yeah. And the one that I was trying to get on. Guess what happened? I don't know. Closed. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I did that yesterday. So or, then you were you over near Universal? I was actually yeah. So you know yeah. the one I'm talking about over on yeah, Vineland is that is that the one? I was going to Healthy Spot to drop my uh, dogs off to. You know. You're taking a shit? <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm drop my dogs off at the pool. <laughs> so what am I doing? I'm driving around, driving around, driving around, just taking surface streets, just, look, just looking for a place to shit. Finally, I just pull over by the side of the road. Anyway, um, stop making sense. Um, definitely listen to the album so many times before I saw the movie that the uh, what I didn't know is that there are nine songs on the album. It's about uh, 40, no, yeah, 40 minutes, 39 minutes and 37 seconds LP. And um, I guess I'd assumed that the movie would have to be longer, but I didn't realize there'd be more songs that weren't on the record. Mm -hmm. And I also didn't know that they cut these songs down on the record and edited parts out. So when I saw the movie, I remember uh, Psycho Killer Starts, which is the first song on both the record and the movie, and suddenly in the middle of it, there's a big, long section where the big the breaks, the big breaks and, and David Byrne is dancing around. And I was I was thrilled. Yeah, I'm wondering because I was looking through and it's not available on Apple Music, certainly, which is the original version of Stop Making Sense. Yeah, I have it right here. How, how did you get that? Is it just did you just rip it from your CD or something? Yeah, oh, we can't get into the this discussion again, Adam, about why 
you listening to Apple Music is is totally inferior to what I do. But yes, I have the original version to of what stuff I do. <laughs> but you, and it's and how everyone agrees. Own- Yes, because that's the stop making sense I used to have was that. Yes, they've taken it down off of streaming services, so you need to have your old CDs. I mean, I love all the extra songs now, but I love, I also love. I love, yeah, I love the shorter versions too. Yeah. Yeah, So do you want to hear a little bit of uh, Psycho Killer so people can hear exactly what we're talking about? This is the first track on the original LP. This is Psycho Killer. Now, when I first heard this, I don't think I was a sophisticated enough listener to know that this wasn't the whole band. Like, I I, I, I did know what, like, electronic drums were because uh, my friend, actually, my friend Scott Kawamura had a uh, an 808 drum machine that we used to yeah. fuck around with. And we <laughs> I remember uh, around this time, we made a, uh, we made a tape for our friend... Uh, for her birthday of us like doing songs for her using the 808 and it was so good that we eventually asked for the tape back <laughs> and we were like hey can we can we borrow our tape back because we we were just like why did we ever give her that tape it was so good um so i knew what a drum machine was but i i i not knowing who the talking heads were really all that much i just kind of thought this was a full band performance so when you see the movie mr burns is essentially he he it starts very close on his feet and pans up and he walks out on stage totally alone with the house lights up with a a big boom box or as what we used to call uh, a, a ghetto blaster which is probably very insensitive at the time oh god yeah you're right that's <laughs> not great not good um and um he puts it down and plays along with what he says is a tape but obviously the sound uh, people in the back triggered um so do you like this version of Psycho Killer better than the original? I do. It's interesting, though, because the this version, which doesn't have those breaks in it, is the same length as the one with the breaks. I think it's because they have maybe more crowd noise or something hmm. on this. Let's hear, let's hear the... Uh... I prefer this to the one with the. I think the breaks are great for the movie, but for the movie, as, but yeah, I agree. Yeah. Like I, I, I think, I think what they did with this record, trimming the songs down and 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 turning it into a forty-minute record because of the constraints of vinyl, 
Yeah. The, these became iconic versions of these songs yes. to us. I mean, especially the ones that we just covered on Speaking in Tongues. Yeah. Um, they, they're sort of, they, they just become transcendent. And then things like Life During Wartime and Take Me to the River, I mean, with the addition of the band, I mean, they just become, you know, transcendent. And uh, What a Day That Was, which was sort of a, it was just a David Byrne song. That that yeah. version is just incredible. Yeah, incredible. So, so let's talk about how this this came to be. Um, so, Talking Heads, in when we last left them, uh, they were they were doing their Speaking in Tongues tour, and they had additional players during it. They had, of course, the great Bernie Worrell from P Funk, and Alex Weir and Steve Scales, and then um, they had a sort of a rotating crew of backing vocals. Uh, what ended up being in the movie was Edna Holt and Lynn Mabry. And uh, they had been doing this tour and on one of their stops here at the Greek, here in LA, a young filmmaker named Jonathan Demi came to see them and loved the show and said, hey, I want to film that. So it wasn't the band technically like going, oh, we, we got to film this as much as it was Jonathan Demi just like happened to see them and said, Oh, this should be a movie and uh, came up to them and said, Hey, can we uh, make a movie out of this? And they, they said, okay. But the the interesting thing about this, Adam is they financed it themselves. Right. So they technically what they did was it it cost $800,000 to start with. They borrowed that against their future royalties from the record company. Uh Uh-huh. So rather than having the record company pay for it and thus own they all don't, the profits. Yeah, from they it. don't get any any of the, the profits from it that way. But it wasn't like they had a million dollars and said, Oh, okay, here you go, you know, yeah. run wild with it. They had to borrow it. Um, which turned out to be, you know, a great business decision for them because yeah. everything it was, was their such biggest a big hit. hit, essentially, right? I believe it's their top selling record. Um I believe well, Little two, Creatures two is like their copies. biggest studio album, right? But this one's like at their the time, biggest yeah, thing. At the, it was definitely the biggest at the time. I'm not quite sure uh, if if it ended up being. But yeah, so they, they decided to film this, this show that they'd been doing, even though they just put out a live record. And, oh, yeah, um, they had like two years prior. Yeah, which is which is a weird thing to do, but everyone just thought like, no, the show is too good. Essentially what they'd been doing with the show was uh, – Mr. Burns, he had seen uh, an artist by the name of Robert Wilson put on some theatrical performances. And so he he sort of borrowed or got inspired by Robert Wilson for the sets and the lights. Right. Um, and then he had this idea to come out in a big suit um, midway through the show, which was sort of inspired by Kabuki theater and and no theater in Japan where everyone was wearing like big exaggerated costumes. And he thought to himself like, oh, okay, that would be cool to come out in like a big, no Kabuki costume, but it's a businessman suit. Right. Now the big suit, Adam, that was, I mean, that was all anyone talked about for a long time. Oh, and just the, the fashion of it was ripped off, not ripped off, but inspired so much in, in fashion for years to come. Oh yeah. The uh, big shoulder pads. I don't know whether they would have necessarily, you know, I mean, that is an interesting question. Do you think like all of those late 80s working girl type fashions with like, you know, suits and big shoulder pads, if that would have happened without Stop Making Sense? I mean, I think that was 
happening already, but this kind of made it cool and and interesting brought it to a different level. Well, I remember um, another thing that cemented Talking Heads is like, okay, this is a band you need to pay attention to was not only my friend John had the record and we would play it all the time, but Rich Hall imitated David Byrne, Mr. Burns on Saturday Night Live. And that was um, the season that I got really into Saturday Night Live because I had never been old enough to watch it. I always had to sneak around to watch it or I watched reruns on on KTLA here. But this this was the first year that I literally watched Saturday Night Live every episode when it was on. And it was the Billy Crystal year and the yeah, Christopher yeah. Guest year and um, Harry Shearer and Martin Short and Rich Hall. He was like, I mean, he it was a squiglets. He did sniglets. Yeah, sniglets. And it was it was a deep bench. Just the fact that Rich Hall, who's super talented, was like, you know, 10th. Yeah, you know, in line or whatever. But he 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 did a sketch where he imitated David Byrne and did all the movements, the chopping on the arm movements that he did in the Once in the Lifetime video, which I had seen before. Um, And that really cemented it of like, okay, this is culturally important. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty incredible. It it permeated everything there for a few years. I remember even that that um, and fans of all of my shows know that uh, in high school I was doing lip sync contests and I was doing uh, dressing up in homecoming uh, parades. And uh, I, I there's a famous picture of me. It, I mean, as famous as I am, which is not very uh, of me dressed as Pee Wee Herman when I'm 14 years old for one of the homecoming uh, uh, shows. But I dressed up as David Byrne once and I got like the biggest suit that my dad had who was bigger than me at the time. And it was, it was big on me. And so, and I was super skinny. And so, uh, and I, I learned, I slicked my hair back and I did all the movements that I saw. And I hadn't even seen the movie at this point, but, uh, but I saw Rich Hall do it. So I basically like imitated him doing it. Yeah. That's hilarious. You, so you were like imitating Rich Rich Hall who was imitating. Yes. And that's what, that's what a lot of comedians I think start out doing is is like imitating their favorite comedians and then they find, find their own voice. I'm still waiting for the second part of that equation. You're still uh, (laughs) just kind of aping Rich Hall. (laughs) Yep. Um, So in any case, they filmed this uh, at the Pantages Theater down the street from us uh, here in Hollywood. And, um, they did it over four nights. I think they had to go back to the record company and ask for another like 300 grand because they wanted to do a fourth night. Um, and a couple things of interest happened during this. So uh, Jonathan Demi was talking about how they had to cut down the show because the the normal concert that you would go see by Talking Heads was two hours and 15 minutes long. Mm-hmm. And it had songs like uh, the one from the Catherine Wheel, the Plymouth song, what was it, Blue Plymouth? Um, And it had like all the, it it had... uh, It's like a full... It was a full concert, concert. yeah. So they had to cut it down. So they cut it down to essentially um, probably about 90 minutes. And Mm -hmm. even then, all the songs didn't get into the final film. But there was one part where... uh, Mr. Burns had to go change into the suit and they needed something to happen during it. And so um, Jonathan Demi said to Tina, like, hey, I want you guys to play the Tom Tom Club song. That's such a big hit. And Tina, according to Tina, she was not thrilled about it. And she was like, no, that's our own thing. We don't want to play it. But then Chris Farts over there. Mm hmm. 
tooting away. He's <laughs> just <laughs> cutting cheese. <laughs> Wait, let's speaking of cutting the cheese. I got to hear that Wikipedia pronunciation from one of our previous episodes. Let's hear the. Let's go to the Wikipedia. Cutting the cheese. Here it is. Ready? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what? Where did Do you we think hear? That's it? real. Where, I don't know. Or was it a dude just doing it? Let's hear it again. <laughs> let's hear it one more time. Sure, surely it would be funny a second time, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it it really is i wonder how it would be for the third time i will never know okay. but so anyway chris farts he uh <laughs> <laughs> he he says to tina no I, I, I we should play it we should play it so they they play uh, in the middle of the concert. They play "Genius of Love," the the big Tom uh, Tom Club hit. Yeah, under with the understanding that Jonathan Demi would not put it in the film. That was the deal they made with him. Why? Wait. Why were they so uptight about this being in the movie? I don't understand. I think because they they were looking for their own identity a little bit, and they were like they didn't want they you know be like backup band to Talking Heads. Yeah, they didn't even want their solo stuff to be, become like sort of submissive to David Burns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff. You know what I mean? So they they wanted it to be its own thing. So then the other really weird part about that is that. Um, Tina says, well, okay, well, what about my sisters? Because they all sing it together on the record. Um, we we want them to sing it with us, right? And Jonathan Demi said, like, no, uh, we, we want uh, the backup singers to sing it with you because mm-hmm. your sisters aren't used to singing in, with such a big crowd. They'll be out of tune. You know, like, these are professionals. Let's make sure. So then when they're filming it, Tina's sisters come to the second night and she's forgotten to tell them that they're doing Genius of Love. Um, Uh, and this is okay. So this is a quote from David Bowman's book. This must be the place on the second or third night. Tina's sisters were in the audience. She hadn't had a chance to warn them about genius of love, which if I were her, it's like, you had a chance. I mean, it's, I don't know. Also like, why does that matter? Because they sang back up on the album. Because they're part of the band. I think, uh, well, I think they used to tour with, with, Tom Tom Club as well. Uh. When Tina took the stage without them, the two Weymouth girls were enraged. This caused a family riff among the Weymouth girls that made the discord among the bloody Lear sisters, that's King Lear, oh boy. look like something out of the family circus comic strip. Wait, who wrote this? David Bowman. First of all, David Bowman, you don't need to bard splain King Lear to me. Or... Family or family circus, circus. like if anything, explain what you mean about family circus, because from what I remember, there wasn't a lot of family discord in the family circus. I mean, occasionally that's part of the point is that he's saying it makes King Lear look as conflict free as family circus. No, he's saying he's saying this is literally the quote. It made the discord among the sisters look like something out of family circus. Right. The 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 discord among the Lear sisters look like something out of the family circus. Okay, you don't need to bard explain this either, Adam. <laughs> but it was why didn't really why did he that big of a deal? Why I didn't he imagine. just say like the Weymouth family makes 
the Manson family look like the Adams family. There okay, you go. we all See, get that. That makes sense. There is um I was watching the LA Confidential. That's good writing. <laughs> I was watching the LA Confidential DVD when it came out and there was a uh, an interview with the guy who wrote it, uh, James Elroy, the guy who wrote the novel. Yeah. And uh he he is teeing up a joke with such relish, like it's the best joke of all time. Listeners of this show will uh, relate. And um, he goes, uh, so I like Confidential. It's got murder. It's got rape. It's got blackmail. Yeah, uh, a, a real family film. If your fucking family is the fucking Manson family. Oh, boy. <laughs> he punched it up by saying fucking it. It was cool. I think that's a... Uh... That's as hilarious as James Elroy gets. Did you ever read My Dark Places? The his like I've never read any of his books. No. Oh boy, is it funny? It's hilarious. It's well, great. He's great. He's great. But good God, good God. Um. So yeah. Uh, good golly, wh- Miss Molly. <laughs> What's weird about this David Bowman book? They never follow up on this. You never get any closure with it. Right. So like, what are you talking about? If he's not going to provide context, like, oh yeah, what? they made up or, or maybe they're still mad at each other. Hey, if you're or, one of the, if you're one of the Waymo so... sisters, write in and tell us if you're still mad. <laughs> but why was it so vicious? Like what happened? Like, does I guess, he never go, even go into it? He, ne- he never goes into it. I read Chris Fartz's book. Uh, Chris Fartz, of course. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> do we do we have to play that every single time Maybe, we say his name? We might. <laughs> but I read his book to try to see if there was any kind of uh, uh, closure on it. He never brings it up. So who knows Wait, if it's true? Book? Whose book? Oh, uh, the book by this dude, his name is Chris. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I I have no idea whether it's true or not, but uh, um, apparently Tina was mad when she saw the premiere, not the premiere of the movie, but the band must have been invited to it before the premiere. And she saw the completed movie and the, the Tom Tom Club song was still in there and she got really mad at Jonathan Demi and Jonathan Demi just kind of went like, well, yeah, it's staying in. Um, right. And that was it. So, uh, and then the only thing Chris says about it in his book um, is that he wishes he wasn't talking, or he wishes he wasn't shouting all the time over the song. Because at, at one point he says... <laughs> <laughs> I remember thinking it was cool that the Tom Tom was in there. When it I saw the movie... felt like... They when were on I, a lower level no. or something. When I saw the movie, I was thunderstruck because I did not realize that Talking Heads, whom I've right. been listening to for a year at this point, that the people behind Talking Heads had done the Genius of Love song. So I was like, immediately it made the, the Genius of Love, Love song, which was a hit that I knew from being played on the radio, like it immediately sort of like made it like, oh, wow, this is an important song that I got. Yeah. So it made me go get the Tom Tom Club record and all that. So... I thought it was a good a good part of the movie, but let's let's hear a little bit of uh, Chris shouting during the uh, Genius Does of he Love go, song. Yeah, well he's he's talking a lot. Is that yeah? That's him. Shot. 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 Oh, 
kind of doing that in the original. Not really. He gets uh, even more towards the end. Let's He's cut pretty, some. probably pretty coked up. Well, that is something that we should talk about because he does talk about it in his book. Um, he says that all of the men in the band were incredibly coked up during the filming of the uh, of the of the movie. Well, watching the movie now, which I watched a few weeks ago, first of all, this movie is like pure joy on yes. screen it's just everyone having such a good time the, yeah. the audience is having a good time you're it's you a have delight. a good time it's incredible but you can also look at it and just assume that they are all just coked out of their brains well chris says none of the women on stage were it was all just like every that one of sense. them every I, one I, of the men were <laughs> that tracks well he also uh in this david bowman book they talk about how um, the other reason that they did the Tom Tom Club song is because Mr. Burns would not only change into his big suit, but he needed to take a Coke break. And he would say, time for my big suit and my little toot. Oh, my God. Really? <laughs> that's <laughs> so funny. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but that's in the book. And the book is based on interviews, I guess. But My um, big suit and my little, little toot. toot. <laughs> oh, my God. Um. Other things that happened when they were on tour with this, um, Chris uh, tells a funny story about how uh, they were all on the plane and, and Bernie Worrell, they didn't think he was on the plane with them. And so they had uh, one of the, the guys run out and, and go to the air, airport bar to go find him. And they they grab him at the last minute and drag him on the plane. And then when they look at him, everyone's like, Dude, that isn't Bernie. That's Ray Charles. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. Is that in like, Chris Fartz's book? Yes. <laughs> I don't remember that at all. Yeah, that's in there. And it's like they were blind and not him. Like Ray Charles is just like, all right, I'll go wherever anyone leads me to go. But um, yeah, so that that was uh, interesting. Uh, this uh, The DP of Blade Runner did this uh, movie. Yeah, Jordan, Jordan Cronenworth. And then Sandy McCloud was, I guess, the visual consultant. But Chris talks about how Demi was fighting with Goldie Hawn about swing shift during this period. And so he didn't even show up to a lot of the performances that they filmed. Hmm. He just kind of like planned it all out and let Sandy uh, uh, actually direct it is uh, according to Chris. We don't know. Did you ever see swing shift? I have never seen it. Have you seen it? I mean, no. It's weird that Jonathan Demi directed it. I don't really think of it as one of his movies. But Yeah, so he did a couple of Roger Corman films that were cheapo exploitation films. And then he did Melvin and Howard, yeah, which was great. an indie film and was great. And then Steenburgen so, won an Oscar. Yeah, she's great, too. You know, Do you know about her? Uh, I don't think it's an accident, but her what's going on with her brain now where she hears everything in music. She, you know what? I I know a little bit about this. I didn't know that was like. Uh, she, what did she, she say about she, it? She well, she she's gotten an Oscar nomination for best song for a movie because of it, because she now hears like everything as music. Yeah, and so she's writing songs constantly 
because yeah. of it. And she's written so many songs that she, there was this song, I forget what movie it was for, but it was a, a movie with a bunch of music and they were looking for songwriters to submit songs. And she wrote this song and sent it to them and they used it and it got an Oscar nomination. And, and wow. it's just I didn't fascinating. Even know, I didn't even know about that. That's, that's it's, I forget exactly what the medical term for it is, but a few people have it. And she, it just kind of like happened. I forget exactly how. Well, I think that that had just started happening to her when we were doing Step Brothers because she was talking about it and but it was a fresh thing that she was trying to explain and she had just started like getting into music a little bit because of this thing that was happening and it was yeah the most interesting there if you can read an article about it because it's it's fascinating and it's one of those kind of things I in our sister show Yui talking Huey Tui me we talked to Huey Lewis about his challenges with, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so, with his hearing changing, but it's one of those like interesting, you know, uh, uh, challenges that she went through, and she's, you know, sort of incorporated into her life in a really fascinating, it's really way. cool. Um, let's see, anything she's else? Of, cool. She's, she's awesome, very cool. Yeah. I I think she elevates anything she's ever in. Uh, I would watch her do anything. Anyway, what I, what I was going to say about Swing Shift is that. Um, Demi got offered mainstream movies after that. And so he took Swing Shift, which starred Goldie Hawn, um, and he directed it kind of like an indie film. And when he turned it in, Goldie Hawn hated it, I guess, mm. and made made him reshoot every single one of her scenes. Yeah. Hmm. So I've never seen it. But uh, he was going through that while Stop Making Sense was being filmed. And honestly, like Stop Making Sense is the thing that catapulted Demi into like being mythic yeah yeah i I definitely saw something wild when it came out a couple years later because oh yeah it was the director of stop making sense it it was just the best terrific yeah anything else you want to say about stop making sense i mean we could listen to some of the other songs if you want uh is is there one that you well i think the this version of this must be the place which didn't was in the movie not the album until much later is i love this version Let's hear a little bit of This Must Be The Place, a.k.a. Naive Melody. Like, they really change up these songs. Everything just feels more full and warm. Yeah. And joyous. Yeah. And cokey. I was hoping that was coming. <laughs> yeah, there it is. It's great. It's great. Well, listen, listen to the backup singers. It's just so good. Um, we should also play "What a Day That Was" because we played yeah. it during we played it dur- when we covered the solo records, and it's kind of cold on. Uh, on record, but it's an incredible version here. Yeah, it's one of my favorites on the record. Kind of has a life during wartime feel. Yeah, and I like this version of life during wartime the most as well. It's, yeah, I mean these are all great. Oh, well, I'm up so nice, and I'm doing 
<laughs> I mean, the, the addition of the backing singers with this just, you know, it makes it like church in a way. Yeah. So it's this great combination of like almost gospel with new wave music that just, uh, you know, and, and this was our introduction to Talking Heads. So it's like going backwards and hearing their earlier albums that are a little more cold is is definitely an interesting experience when this is what you think Talking Heads is, is this this group of people, you know. And this life during wartime, too, it's like a. It's loosening it up and tightening it up at the same time. Like it's expanding it, but tightening it. It's it's really weird, but I feel like this life during wartime is the definitive one. It just feels yeah, so much more alive. Let's also hear a little bit of swamp because uh, oh, yeah, you got you got uh, good old uh, Steve Scales shouting over it a lot, which I, I think is really funny. This is what uh, Donald Trump got us out of, by the way. He drained it. By the way, uh, um, that first presidential debate, uh, no, he didn't let him finish. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I thought of it. does that all throughout the thing just adding like so good um just a great great record in either form um if you if you can only if you only have like 40 or 45 minutes to listen to an album though uh uh, check out the original uh cd version the original cd is 46 minutes the original lp is 40 minutes and uh it just encapsulates everything that uh talking heads is all about and the movie I mean, if it's on, you want to see... It's on Amazon. It's, it's on Amazon. You can buy it on iTunes. Oh, is it for free on Amazon? On yeah. like Prime or whatever? Yeah. Just check it out. It's just one of the, um, if not the best concert film of all time. Although, you know, Mr. Burns has his American Utopia coming out uh, next week. So oh, is that next we'll, week? Yeah. Great. So we'll see how that uh, stacks up. But um, one thing that I wanted to, before we go to break, because we, we have a big show, we have uh, uh, George Harrison coming up on the show to talk. One thing that I wanted to play, um, since we're talking about uh, this period of Talking Heads, a lot of people sent us this clip, and I wanted to play it. This is maybe one of the best versions of uh, Burning Down the House, best cover versions uh, that I've oh, ever cool. heard. Um, so just want to play this. So here we go. Everybody, welcome to Tool Time. I am, and for the last time, Tim the Tool Man Taylor. And of course, you all know my assistant, Al, be doing infomercials for a living Borley. <laughs> well, 
should be a nice show. Uh, our last show, but of course, we all hope to be on to bigger and better things. Uh, as a matter of fact, Al here is getting married this weekend. Yeah. We have a great last show for you today. Benford. Benford wants us to intentionally overload a household outlet like this. Thereby starting a fire and burning the entire set down. Instead, I'm going to show you the right way to do this. Folks, just get a surge protector. Duh. <laughs> End of segment. That's really Good night, everybody! Wait, that can't be the end. This is the last oh, show. Oh, I know what you're thinking. Come on, last tool time. Just plug it in a toaster. Come on, aren't you going to light anything on fire? Of course we're gonna light some on fire. We're gonna burn this place down, baby. With everybody that helped us build it. These diehard fans drop whatever they were doing to be in this last tool time with us. Let's have a warm tool time welcome for America's favorite all tool band, the K&B Boys. Oh shit, the K&B Boys. All tools, all tool band. The all tool band. Is this the last episode or something? This is the final episode of, of Home Improvement. Which, by the way, I auditioned for <laughs> this episode, and uh, so here's what happened: the I, I I got word that I had a last minute audition over at CBS Radford, where they filmed Home Improvement, and um, it was last minute because they needed someone really good to step into this role of like the TV network person who cancels the show, and and I think they had fired the person that they had before, so they needed someone super last minute. So it was they were like, we're only bringing three people in. And um, whoever gets it has to immediately go from the audition and film it, right? Mm -hmm. So three of us go into the uh, waiting room, okay? And it's all three of us, and we're and we're we're talking to each other, and we're like, "So it's going to be one of us, huh? Like one of us has to go do this thing." And we're like, huh, "Well, you know, good luck, you know, camaraderie, nice uh, sure. uh, audition." And this is before I'm offer only, of course. Um, yeah, of course. And, uh, you, you know, Adam, of course, that I'm offer only. And, of and along with that comes caveats of I will not learn lines. Uh, I will not sign a release for the production. So you'll have to blur me out. Um, I will not post. work on this until I start getting paid. So don't expect me to yeah. be prepared. I need stacks and stacks uh, uh, just even before I, I start even thinking about the role. Mm -hmm. But in any case, so me and me and two other guys are in the... Uh, waiting room and they bring in the first guy and um you can hear him doing the lines in the other room and then they say okay by the way everyone is going to have to come back here and wait until we decide who's who's got it so the first guy comes back and and he finishes his audition he sits back down in the waiting room i'm third right mm -hmm. they bring in the second guy you hear him doing his audition he never comes back to the waiting room <laughs> <laughs> he i guess just went immediately to the set from from there it was almost as if he had like a giant a giant trap door opened up in the middle of the floor and you just went bloop and it just like deposited him at the set and so the 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 woman auditioning comes back out for me and is like okay you ready and i'm going like why bother you've already taken that guy to go do this but i went and did it and of course you know they bring me back to the the waiting room. They come back and tell the two of us that neither of us got it. Oh, and, that's awful. And what was the part? Do you remember? Is it in it the was, sequence? Uh, it's it's not. We won't hear it, but it's the network executive who cancels the show, I think. Uh, so I think I watched it to see how it turned out, but I don't remember. Anyway, we 
we're getting to the burning down the house cover. Here it is. All, all through how many movies right? did they yes, show the set in the studio audience like this? That yes, because be it was a fake TV show. God. The drummer, by the way, is the guy who played one of the drug dealers on Justified, and he's great in Justified. Yeah, and, and we'll he s- was in a pilot that I did uh, in 96. Forget Love his name. It. He passed away. Oh, great, great actor. Here mm-hmm. we go. Fuck yeah, Sparky Henderson is on this show. Oh my god. Look at all my. these white people. Yeah. Oh wait, nope. He's only the 15th person on stage. Mario Andretti, the race car driver, Jeez. is pretending to pretending to turn a steering wheel. Someone just opening and closing an umbrella. (laughs) Did they actually light anything on fire? I don't know. This is so depressing. (laughs) Oh, my God. This is... This is up there with Chevy Chase and Goldie Hawn singing Happy Birthday. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's a good one. That's a good clip. What's better, the Parks and Rec finale or this? I don't know. It's a toss-up. It's a tie. Oh, my God. They do set something on fire. And then immediately the fire marshals come and put it out. I mean, what is the? what are they saying? I mean, this is... Yeah. The, anyway, thank you to our uh, to our listeners for sending us that. I uh, cannot wanted to make sure <laughs> they let them do. They let them gave them the rights. I mean, they must have paid them so much money. But Incredible, Lord. Um, all right, we need to take a break. This is exciting, Adam. When we come back, George Harrison, a Beatle, is going to be on this show. I do feel the Parks and Rec finale is far better than that. Just to just to be one hundred percent clear. Well, uh, let's agree to disagree. We will be. <laughs> Right back with more you talking, talking heads to my talking head with George Harrison himself will be here right after this. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You talking, talking heads to my talking head. And we have a Great, big, important guest coming up. Uh, a member of Talking Heads will be with us, but I uh, wanted to say during the break, Adam, something happened with your uh, recording there at home. Your computer crashed and you're unable to keep recording your own vocals, but we have the Zoom vocals here, but uh, people will notice a little bit of a difference. Is that right? Yeah, I'll sound shitty. <laughs> but that's okay. I mean, people are, look, people are not listening to the show for you. Let's just That's true. Nor for the quality of my voice. No. And they're not even listening for me. They're listening because we have a great big important guest 
coming up. And th- I am so excited about this. I mean, we've we've had special guests over the years, have we not? We, we have. And I, I just have to say, I'm a little uh, blown away that we're that we have uh, this particular guest here. This particular guest. Us. We've, we've you know, on our sister shows, we've had, let's count them down. We had you two on You Talking yeah. You Two to me. They appeared yeah. on the show. We had three quarters of the members of REM on Are You Talking REM, Remy? We had Hugh, Huey Lewis on Huey Talking Huey Tooey Me. And we, and we had Todd Glass on Stained Glass. Yeah, so, most importantly, we had Todd Glass on Stained Glass. So we knew when we did this show, we were hoping against hope that one of the members, at least, of Talking Heads would join us. And uh, this is very exciting because the the minute we started doing this show, uh, we got a message that uh, our guest is was excited to appear on it. And it is our pleasure to introduce him. He has been, I mean, let's list his bands that he has appeared in. Okay, we have... First of all, the the lovable lads from Liverpool, the Beatles. This the is the Quarry Men too. Before the before the, quarry, the Beatles, before the, the Beatles, man. we have and the Silver Beatles, of course, as well. S- the Silver, Silver Beatles. Beatles. Yes. We have uh, maybe even better than the Beatles, the Traveling Wilburys. I mean, right. that's one of my favorites. One yeah. of my fa- incredible. It's a su- the super group they call uh, Traveling Wilburys. That's right. And then somehow in between those two bands, the Beatles and Traveling Wilburys, he fit in. Being in Talking Heads, this is so exciting. Please welcome George Harrison. Hello, George. Oh, it's so nice to be here. I mean, let's not forget that The Modern Lovers was another project I slipped in there, too. The Modern... Oh, so, my God. That is so crazy. The uh, Modern, modern yeah. Lovers, Beatles, Traveling Wilburys, That's The right. Quarry Men, The Silver Beatles. You know, I had this problem in The Modern Lovers is that they wouldn't let me do My Sweet Lord. <laughs> and it was, it was. Well, it was the it copyright. Just it, just, it just didn't fit with the kind of punk sound. Yeah. So I took on this pseudonym of Jerry Harrison at that point, uh. and I and then I used that in Talking Heads. <laughs> That's and then went back for Traveling Wilburys to of course, George. of course, that makes sense. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, this is incredible. I mean, to have a guest of your stature on this uh, uh, show is just uh, such an honor to to have you uh, for us. And uh, welcome to the show. First, we want to say well, that how's your you. how's your quarantine going? It's going pretty well. I'm fortunate enough to live where there's uh, fabulous hiking right across the street from me. So I could get exercise very easily in pretty places where it's not that crowded. Where do you live? Mount Everest? Uh, Well, I live in Marin County across the the Golden Gate Bridge. Oh, okay. I live sort of across the street from Mirror Woods. Oh, Incredible. fantastic. Um, I grew up uh, right down uh, below you in Santa Cruz. Ah, another beautiful location. Yeah. Is this an episode of Beautiful Locations? I believe it is. <laughs> Starting locations. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Beautiful Locations. This is Scott. And this is Scott. And we have a very special guest on Beautiful Locations today. We have George, uh, quote, Jerry, unquote, Harrison. And we're talking uh, beautiful locations. What, Jerry, you've been all around the world. You traveled Europe with the Ramones. Uh, what is the most beautiful location you've ever seen? Well, there's sort of spectacular beauty, and then there's uh, charming beauty. I mean, I, I think the coast of Italy, uh, the towns like Portofino and Positano and Ravello are certainly in the 
the, the most amazing. And then I would say for spectacular beauty, sort of really here in California, some of the national parks and ocean views. Uh, I mean, I've been a lot of places that are beautiful. I found Japan incredibly beautiful. And, you know, then cityscapes like Paris or Amsterdam just, you know, completely captivate you. Textbook episode of what was the name of this show? Beautiful Locations. <laughs> Beautiful Locations. locations. That's yeah. right. Okay, we'll see you next time. Thanks, bye. Bye. Yeah, yeah. That was a good episode. Oh, yeah, yeah. that was great. We got a, a nice kind of trip around the world. Trip around yes. the world. Amazing. That's right. Um, Jerry, so so we, of course we're talking about Stop Making Sense in this episode, but we, we want to expand a little bit and talk uh, you know, about your entire career, especially with Talking Heads. So, so many questions come to mind and Adam and I have been talking for the past couple of weeks when we learned that you would be on the show about what are we going to ask Jerry? What are we going to ask Jerry? Um, we've been emailing back and forth. Okay. You ask him this, I'll ask him this. And really the, the, the one thing that was kind of paramount on our minds was we really wanted to ask, when did you first hear of talking heads? It was, I believe reading about them in, in 1975, um, I was living in Cambridge post The Modern Lovers and working for a software development company called Cambridge Computer. And then I met them in the summer of uh, 1976. And fortunately, they the Modern Lovers record that had been recorded in 1972 came out in 1976. And in some ways was a blueprint, but also very embraced by the kind of developing punk scene because it's, you know, we in the Modern Lovers, we wanted to stand in contrast to what I would call mannerist rock and roll, which is a lot of progressive rock I would include in that, which was all about bombast and having learned to play in the academy and incredible uh, technique on your instruments, but sometimes ridiculous lyrics based on old English, you know, myths and And the Lord of the Rings. And, and Lord of the Rings and, and and things like How many how many songs have you written about the Lord of the Rings, would you say? In total? None. None. Because I I sort of I thought Swamp could have been about the Lord of the Rings, especially mm. like where they meet Gollum. Uh well I you know I had not thought of that. Um possibly so that had just come out and so and and was a very successful record. And so is the story basically that they were looking to expand the the three piece lineup with a keyboardist and they were asking around. Yes. And someone mentioned you, right? That's right. I, I know that uh Steve Paul, who had had the famous club in, in New York called Steve Paul Scene, which is uh was a mid sixties club where Famous jam sessions with Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, and Jeff Beck took place, and various other people that happened to be in town. Actually, the engineer I work with, Eric E.T. Thorngren, had a band, Bulldog, and Jimi Hendrix came and jammed with his band, a Steve Paul. Why do they call him E.T. Thorngren, by the way? Is that because of the movie E.T.? Is that. No, he... it's. Um, well, he has one nickname. He calls it extra testicle is why. <laughs> three testicles. <laughs> and he also says every time. And uh, 
I think he said it was because sort of he always delivers. So when you joined Talking Heads, I, I know you mentioned that that Modern Lovers kind of broke up because Jonathan wanted to go in another direction uh, with his performing. Uh, the the stories sort of say that you were pretty reticent to start another band or join another band because of your experience with Modern Lovers. Is that safe to say? It's It's safe to say that I was... I had sort of made the switch in my mind that I was going to do something different. And I was just entering uh, architecture school when I met the Talking Heads. And and I kind of thought, like, I better go to school while I still have a little bit of the... It's not so far away when I was an undergraduate. And so j- just as I was starting, so they were very, very nice to let me do a semester in a way of... of I kind of, and over that semester, it became concrete that I would join. Okay. Mm-hmm. I went down to the first rehearsal I had with that was them was in the summer of 76. And they were living down in the loft on Christie Street, where uh, I have to say it somewhat freaked me out. I mean, I had spent quite a bit of time in New York, in both in college, but also in the Modern Lovers. And, but, you know, being in a loft where you had to go out into a black, dark hall to go to the bathroom where you had no idea who was there in the middle of the night was a little on the unnerving side. So there was no ensuite. This was uh No, there was communal... no ensuite bathroom and there was like a bullet hole in the window where a stray bullet nice. had, had oh. gone through. So that's, that's great. You know, it, it set the stage for and actually I showed up at the rehearsal because the only way I could get there I had really, I had spent a lot of money on the Modern Lovers and we never really got our advance from Warner Brothers. So <laughs> I was really broke and I ended up moving, a, to get to New York to do the rehearsal, I had to help Ernie Brooks from the Modern Lovers and we had the band van. We moved a family to New York <laughs> and when we finished packing the the van, there was no room for my keyboard. So I just showed up with a guitar. They go, we were looking for a keyboard player. And I said, oh, I do that too. But all I could fit in the van was a guitar player. But let's just the start The keyboard playing. is like the flattest instrument that there is. Why couldn't it fit? Like, at least, could you could you put it above your head? or? Well, some just... of the newer ones would fit, but this was a little bit bulkier. Oh, okay. Couldn't couldn't figure out. Yeah. So you start with with Talking Heads, and and there also was a story that you you told them you didn't want to join uh, until they had a record contract. Is that correct as well? I don't recall that specifically being a a barrier. I saw it as that that happened while I was doing this first semester at uh, at Harvard Graduate School of Design, and. And I was in the process of like, am I willing to just give, I got to give it up again. Okay, I'm going to go back to music. And it became pretty clear. After I played the show at the Ratskeller, there was no question in my mind that this was what I wanted to do. What was it about the band that you you just really intrigued you and made you shy away from a very promising architectural career? It was that I knew they were entirely unique. And there was nothing in the world like them. I mean, it was really the same thing that brought me to the to the modern lovers. So I was playing music all through college, but still thinking that it probably wouldn't be a career. And then Jonathan came into Ernie in my apartment, and I was making a film about alienation, and I decided to put him in it. 
What a, a short film or a feature or it would no, it was a little documentary for a documentary film class okay. I was making because they made a movie called Alienation with uh, Mandy Patinkin, I believe, that came out. So you didn't make that. You had James Gunn. No, that was much later. Okay, they stole my idea, obviously, <laughs> uh, and. I started listening to this music that I had recorded of Jonathan and him talking, and he started hanging around. And just at a certain point, it's like, there's nothing in the world like this. So I had the same feeling when I met Talking Heads. And then when I played with them, it was so apparent that we had sympathetic views on austerity about parts and not getting, not stepping on each other's toes. And I think that one of the things that made me appeal to them is that other keyboard players, when they had tried out, spent a lot of time to try and show how good they were at their instrument, which caused them to play long solos or to play complicated parts. And whereas when I started playing with them, and this also could have come from playing guitar first, which I was less, well, I, you know, I spent much more time playing keyboard, so I had much more facility on it. And I just would watch what, I would look at what, David was playing and listened to it. I listened to what Tina was playing and I would come up with a sometimes a hybrid of something they were doing that reinforced whatever was going on. And it, so their sound didn't feel like, oh my God, it's gone off to left field. It's like, this is, this is just us, but a little bigger and fuller. It uh, still sounds like us. So uh, you guys put out, uh, obviously you weren't on the first single, but you're on the first record, Talking Head 77. And um, I heard you talking about how one of the things that made Talking Head such a success was the fact that uh, you guys didn't spend any money, which is which is really interesting because most bands, when they get the advance, you know, start blowing it on limos and coke and... Right doing naughty things with naughty, naughty women. Yeah. And and maybe you guys did that too, but you were more frugal about it? We were very, very frugal. Uh, Tina was the road manager when I joined the band, and after a year or two, I took over and was the road manager. And we Was toured. that because you, you wanted to spend less money than she was spending? No, it was just I was willing. Uh, maybe she was tired of it, or I said, right. I'll do this. <laughs> You're um, actually willing to do the boring. And But it meant that we didn't have anybody traveling with us. You know, there was no one making, a, you know, I or we'd make the arrangements for the hotel and get there ourselves. We didn't have any babysitters, so to speak. And we had only two crew. We had no lighting person. We would just go into any place and say, please take the gels off, aim them at where we are on the stage. When we walk on stage, turn them on. And when we walk off, turn them off. And I remember having discussions with the union lighting at, at Radio City. And they go, well, what about spots? And I went, we don't need spots. And they go, well, we have to pay them anyway. I said, okay, then have them put no gels, just have them open it up and light the stage from the front. And they go, it is more efficient. We can have one do two. I said, okay, then have them all just light up the front of the stage. So I think I got probably it was the most minimal uh, crew that radio station, I mean, that Radio City ever had for what, a band. What, what did you have against gels? Was it you'd seen other bands use colored and gels for the, the people, for the people listening, that is the sort of uh, colored cellophane? Is it made of cellophane or? Uh, that you put in front of a light to sort of make make the spotlight have a different color on it, yellow. Right. Or, or But what did you have against them? I think what we had against them was that unless you got to the point that it was designed and so 
integrated into a show and you had a really expert lighting designer and operator that they always seemed sometimes slightly out. Like when, if you would go in and the local light lighting person for the club did it, he was always a moment. He didn't know when you would change. So he was, he would be off. They'd either do things just moving to the beat, flashing lights, or they, <laughs> you know, and it was always just looked um, unprofessional and corny. And you, and you didn't want to pay for a guy to travel along with you who no, knew we didn't, what we, was happening. We only had, we had two crew, one person who mixed the sound and one who was on stage. They set the music up. We traveled in the beginning in a station wagon, and they drove in a van. We just kept it simple, and we did that all the way through the end of, of Fear of Music. But that became part of your whole aesthetic, didn't it? It became a part of what set you apart, was this just bright white light on all of you for, for the show. It was so different from what everyone and else sort of was anti, doing. anti-rock and that, and that, you know, became part of your aesthetic with the way you address too, with your sort of right. like norm core, what we call yeah. norm core now, which is just eyes on shirts. Yes. I, I would, uh, it was part of our aesthetic. I mean, you, you saw some things like this in the theater. I mean, coming from, you know, things that were in black box theaters and theater of the absurd and where there was a lack of artifice and it was sort of up to the, you wanted to see every facial reaction of everybody on stage. And it was about the, I'm not going to try and cover it up in any way by the drama of the lighting. I think that one of the great things that happened with this is that Every member of the Talking Heads drew had a, had a fan that particularly, let's say, were drawn to them. I mean, you know, David and Tina obviously had the most, but Chris and, and I had people that were would watch us intently. But you always had a b- ability to see what anybody was doing in the band at the same time, and so you were really able to see the interplay. And as great as I think "Stop Making Sense" is, and of course that's the focus of this. It, you know, there were some times where it was weird where I'd go, Bernie and I are in the dark. And, it, it would, and I, it's almost like you'd be playing and I'm going, Bernie, what are you doing after the show or something like, you know, I mean, it's like you, you it took away your constant intensity at the audience. Right. Whereas I think, well, I think that when you felt so naked in just that white light, there was just nothing but concentrating on the music you were playing, the people, the mu- other musicians, and then the audience itself. It's almost like uh, uh, de-elevating the idea of rock stars. Like there, there's yes. so much goes into rock stars of of their fashion and putting the right lights on them and making the making it seem like everyone's a rock god. Right. And you guys were trying to say like, hey, no, we're just like you, the audience. Well, I think that that's something we shared with the punk ethos. I think the punk ethos in general was. If I have something to say, I will find the means to say it. And you out in the audience, you could do this too. I'm, we're all just, I'm just like you. I just happen to have gotten up stage and done this. You know, I remember, uh, think, and it, I'm sure the influence, uh, a lot of the influence came from you guys. One of the most striking moments, talking about a previous band we've focused on in the U2 tour in like mm-hmm. 2000, was when they started the, the show. Tour, yeah. Yeah, by yeah. walking out on stage with all the house lights up and playing a full song. Right. 
uh, without any lighting and just playing in you the room You saw them walk everybody. from backstage to get onto the stage. It really was, was like, hey, there is no artifice here. This is just... That's right, yeah. Well, they had they had done a they opened for us a number of times, and we're we're good friends with theirs. And I think that they certainly absorbed us as one of the many influences for them. Yeah, yeah, sure. As well as REM, huge yeah. Talking Heads yeah. fans. Um, yeah. Well, we uh, we need to take a break, uh, if that's okay. J now, Jerry, we haven't even gotten to stop making sense. We have to get to stop making sense, of course, because that of is course. the episode we're talking about. Um, when we come back, we are going to be. Continuing our conversation with George, a.k.a. Jerry Harrison, we will be right back with more You Talking Talking Heads to My Talking Head. After this, we'll be right back. Welcome back. You Talking Talking Heads to My Talking Head. Adam and I are here with the legendary... Some people, you hear people called the fifth beetle a lot, but you're like the third beetle, which is incredible. <laughs> yes, that's right. How many fifth beetles were there? There was Pete Best. There was Brian Epstein. There was uh, uh, yes. who played a uh, uh, keyboard? Uh, Billy uh, Billy Preston. Uh, Billy Preston. So many fifth beetles, but we're talking to one of the original four beetles here. George Martin. Yes, yes, George. George Martin. Martin, you certainly considered. Was there anyone else you considered to, to be a fourth Beatle or a fifth Beatle? No, I think I think that you that covers uh, it. Well, maybe jo John's wife, but uh, Yoke. Oh yeah, Yoke. 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 Sure, she was proud. <laughs> Did she, she really around. break up your band? Well, I be, uh, well, I think that John became pretty uh, infatuated and certainly yeah. distracted. Yeah, boy, it but always plastic happens. Plastic Ono band's so good; it's almost worth it, right? <laughs> I'm not sure about that, but uh, <laughs> it, 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 I mean, after all, I'm not John. I'm George. Yeah, yeah, so. no, sure, you're right, of course. You're right. But it allowed me to go out and play with Clapton and Bobby yeah. Delaney, and you know that was really, really fun. Budokan, all those great. Things. Yeah, I mean, I mean, those, you know, all those things, and you know, as well as gave me time to get more involved in my meditation and the Hare Krishna movement, and. <laughs> You know, just very expand, important, very important for what, you know, yeah. uh, you know, the, I think that John and George, uh, John and uh, Paul was his name. I believe, everyone, yeah. everyone else had become sort of, uh, you know, when they kind of saw what they thought was Maharishi behaving badly, they had just thrown up their eye, their hands at the whole thing. But I still saw some uh, value in it. Yeah, they never totally got it anyway. No, no not you, like you. You had to have a quieter soul to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So uh, we're talking, of course, about uh, uh, Jerry's whole career with Talking Heads and, and beforehand and everything. But uh, the focus of this episode is Stop Making Sense, which um, when we asked you which album you'd like to cover, uh, we heard Stop Making Sense is, is uh, pretty much what you wanted to talk about. Why is that? Well, partially because you just done Fear of Music. I think I would have chosen that first. But oh, okay. uh, I think that Stop Making Sense, for many people... Is was sometimes their introduction to Talking Heads. You it know, was mine, who, certainly. Mine, mine as well. The people who had not, who were maybe a little younger or just had not, it was one that penetrated. And because it was a film, we actually succeeded at doing something that I was really trying, wanted us to do with this film, which was not replace, but be an alternative to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> I wanted to be the the film that 
a theater could play every Saturday night and people could come. And so one of the things was so essential was not to have any talking in it, right. to have it just be music. I heard you talking. Yeah, I heard you talking about that on the the DVD of Stop Making Sense. What? But you didn't mention like which films did that a lot. Is that uh, which previous rock documentaries had a lot of talking over them that you can remember? Well, the one that really drove me crazy was the film about Jimi Hendrix, mm. where they would go into a you know, a, some uh, one of the other songs recorded at Monterey Pop that's not featured in Monterey Pop, which is, of course, only Wild Thing. And then they would cut back to people who had known Jimmy in high school. <laughs> and I'm going, who I mean, gives I'm talking, a yeah, shit? Yeah, who I mean, cares? Slightly interesting, but like you just cut it short <laughs> just as he was going into the best part of the solo. Well, here's, a, here's a guy doing something no one else <laughs> in the world can do. And let's talk to one of his buds. <laughs> Yeah. And and you see it in almost all of the documentary films that they never let the songs play all the way through. I w I always feel that that way about biographies of of people as well like uh we're usually reading a biography of someone because they've done extraordinary things. Right. And when they start off with five chapters about their dumb life growing up, I'm always yeah. like, who can get to get to the talking about when you were like doing these incredible things that I the, the reason I bought it. So so you guys just wanted to do a movie that was just pure music that had, That's right. and, had and nothing really, else. We had a we had a very visual show. And so we wanted to really just capture what we were doing. And Jonathan thought that was a great idea. This is Jonathan and Demme, the late Jonathan uh, the late Demme, Jonathan yes. Demme. And he, uh, you know, brought in a fabulous director of photography, Jordan Cronenworth. And he, you know, just enhanced what was already going on on stage every night. So this was the Speaking in Tongues tour that... Well, we had already done a tour for Speaking in Tongues. So this was a second tour designed with this kind of we uh, ideas that we'd explored on the Remain in Light and then particularly on the Speaking in Tongues tour of starting with a stripped down psycho killer and people joining the joining the band in the Remain in Light tour we did a few songs as a four piece and then people came out but we didn't but we took it you know one step further with David doing the first song and then Tina joining him and then Chris and then me uh so anyway, it was a anyway it was a conceptual piece, and uh, we just thought it, you know, it would be an amazing tour, and it turned out to be just an amazing tour. And so Jonathan saw it, and he goes, "I th I want to film this," and so we really did it at the end of the American tour. I think we only did two more shows after that, at a at a festival in New Zealand and a, at a festival in Australia. Wow! So that was that was right at the end. That's crazy. Yes. Yes, it, it, it was four nights at the Pantages Theater in Hollywood. By the way, where I saw Shrek the Musical. Oh, I see. And yeah. I saw the producers. Nice. I, I always, I was so surprised. To, it wasn't until recently that I found it was at the Pantages. I always figured it was this enormous place. It's not like the Pantages is tiny, but I've been there many times. It doesn't, it, in the movie, it feels like, Mm. Uh, an arena. I just always pictured it at a giant, you know, arena or huge, huge place. And it's it's actually a probably a great place for for filming because you can control it. 
Yeah, the, and the sound was good as well, and and we could control it. And we filmed it over four nights. The first night was a rehearsal where people were wandering around with, you know, candle, but like kind of checking out camera angles. Like, you know how directors go with like looking through a, a lens and loop. Yeah. And then they set up a track because it was filmed in 35 millimeter for like a Panaflex camera to roll down and they had to take the seats out. So one night they did stage left, one night they did the center and one night they did stage right. And then, so when we went into the editing process, the first thing was to do was to pick which performance was the best performance. I think, I think most of them were the, the final night. And, but there were a couple of times where we edited or chose another one. We did do a few repairs uh, when there was terrible leakage on a part or something like that. So some of the vocals were redone where there mm. was, you didn't have enough definition. Was there ever um, uh, an issue with th the timing being different between night to night or were you all on a click track or? Uh, no, we were not on a click track. Chris listened to a click to start the song. Actually, if you go back and watch it, you'll see with great detail, you, you'll start to go like, oh, the sync's going out there. So you'll know it's mm. a shot from another night. Mm -hmm. Would you charge full price for the shows, even though it was it was a shorter show than you normally did? I, I had heard that you cut out songs in order to sort of make it a little more movie length. And then you, you have all these like special lights and stuff like that. Or, or were, were, was this your normal L.A. tour stop? We had already played in L.A. This was very much, this is going to be a filming. You have to sign something that you're coming mm -hmm. in here. I can't recall whether we charged or whether we used some sort of primitive fan club. Right. Which, not that we ever really had a fan How club. How much were tickets back then? Weren't they like $18? $20, yeah. Yeah, they were, they were Extremely reasonable. Yeah, what a deal. I was watching the movie last night, and so much of it is, uh, and I had forgotten this. So, so, so many times the camera is focused on the crew bringing on mm -hmm. in the middle of a song, which, which is just you know the opposite of what you would think you would do in a rock movie. You would disguise all that stuff, and yet during the first four or five songs, you're just taking a break during these incredible musical performance to watch like essentially guys pushing something out on stage, yes. which is, yeah. it actually draws you even further in, but it's the opposite of what you think would happen. When you, when you first saw the movie, were you ever saying like, Jonathan, why are you focusing on this so much? No, because we, I mean, that was part and parcel of the show. Mm. The idea that nothing was really hidden. It was very visible. I think also, one of the reasons that it stopped making sense as a film has had such lasting power is that it, uh, none of the lighting devices used were sort of a new invention that you then peg to that time period. Right. That was right around the time that Vera lights came out where you started having computer motors move the lights. Right. I think actually Phil Collins owned that company. And really? from that Phil point Collins. on, from that point on, you know, that was, that was part of lighting is that you'd see lighting, you know, when we, in the way we did it in Stop Making Sense, you'd have had a person up there doing the lighting and moving it. Right. And so the idea of um, rear screen projections of slides I mean, I think that had been done since the 20s or the 30s. And just everything about it was sort of 
almost felt homemade or that like a, a call it could have been done in a college pr- production so it almost, it almost yeah. yeah it almost seemed like it was influenced more by theater than by rock music which then doesn't date it to whatever was happening in rock music at the time that's yeah that's right i i and that's why i think one of the reasons is is that beyond the music standing the test of time the look doesn't date it, and therefore, except for the shoulder pads that we're wearing in some of our clothes. <laughs> yeah, well, let's talk. Let's talk about your clothes. Like when you when you watch the movie now, I mean, you're you're wearing a. a I mean, it's kind of like a jumpsuit. It's almost like an Eddie Murphy in Raw without the red color in a way. But it's you're, very right now. It's like perfectly yeah. in style in 2020. It's so cool yeah. looking. Yeah, I don't think I'm wearing a jumpsuit. I think I'm just wearing gray pants and a gray shirt most of the time. And there's a time where I might have a jacket on. Um, the There was an idea that we would be all in gray so that we wouldn't distract from the lighting. Of course, I think Chris said, fuck that. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, because isn't he wearing like a red polo or something? I think like he's that? wearing a, tur- a turquoise <laughs> right, uh, right. <laughs> uh, Lacoste shirt. <laughs> And um, just like a drummer, right? Always kind of saying like, I'm just going to do my own thing back here. Independent. At least he didn't take the shirt off, which is what most drummers do. Like they'll come out in whatever the band has agreed to wear. And then like one song in, they just take it off and they're shirtless the entire time. Well, it gets hot playing drums. You got to take But it gets hot doing anything. And your pants off. (laughs) Um, As far as the album goes, Jerry, uh, until the special edition came out and Home Naive Melody and those other songs were included, the one we grew up with was quite a bit shorter. Was that That's sequencing right. tough to do to, to make those cuts? Because it's not the sequencing that is in the movie. It's No, we, yeah, we, we made the album stand on its own. And the earlier one was shorter because of the confines of vinyl. Yeah, right? of course. And, and in fact, it was when there was, when we decided to do a DVD it was a, a period of time where Chris and Tina and I had done, done that band, that, that album called No Talking, Just Heads. And I, which is what I wanted to not, I didn't want to have a band name. I just wanted to say No Talking, Just Heads. I always thought sort of it was everyone's idea of a perfect date. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but the record company required us to, and we ended up using the heads. Uh, I think we should have used shrunken heads, but David ended up suing us over the use of the name and over the use of the name head the heads the heads, the, the yeah. heads. because there would be confusion with talking heads, but there wasn't. I mean, right. but so there was the kind of one period in my life where I really didn't have uh, uh, sort of was on the David and I were on the outs with each other, and I was in New York with a good friend of mine, David Beale, who was working for. Chris Blackwell, and they were really into sort of music with with a video, so DVDs that had performances uh, being a new art form. And, and we started talking about the Stop Making Sense film, and I, I said, we ought to do it. And then I saw that David was playing down at the Didding Factory, so I just said, well, why don't we go down and talk to him? So David and I went down, and that sort of broke the ice. And we went, so then we, David was probably more interested in re-releasing the film. So a great deal of the of the money that would have gone into the production of the DVD went into remixing the record for, I think, whatever theaters could do then, but what basically was compatible with what became 5-1 sound. Right. And, and included in that was in 
mixing than the rest of the songs that we were not going to include in the record. So E.T. and I then met up in, in L.A. and mixed the, the other tracks. And then E.T. had gone to the mix in New York of the film, and I felt it was too ambient. And so E.T. and I, I said, I want to do an alternate mix. And, but of course, there was no budget. So I had a little studio that I rented by the month. And I then, <laughs> I went to a music store and actually bought three sets of speakers. And E.T. and I did a new 5-1 mix. And then re I returned the speakers at the end of the month. <laughs> and we, we did that in the studio. So if you would see on the DVD or on the Blu-ray that there's the sort of movie mix and there's an alternative mix. Oh, interesting. And the my view is that the earlier songs which have fewer instruments on them i like the movie mix now hmm. but the minute that the whole band is out there i prefer the mix that et and i did and so as far as the songs that were on the original shorter record go the way we listen to it now are those the original mixes that they we are. listened to in the 80s and then they on the cd on the on the expanded edition it still is those it's mixes. the same mixes remastered right. and then the additional mixes that et and i did in right. la to to do the other songs cuz those are just i i know there it's a little bit different in the movie but those are just you know for for guys like Adam and I, we we listened to that record, and those became kind of the official sure. versions of the songs over the years. Because I I listened to that record for probably nine months before I saw the movie. Yeah, me too. Uh, and it and it became just kind of you know the 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 parts that were cut out of songs uh, like in Psycho Killer, and you know those it, it sort of became the official Talking Heads album to us. Right, doing that mix, we were at soundtracks. So it was one time that Et and I. It was so weird. It's like, you know, you're so dialed in and E.T. like moved like the bass drum, like a quarter of a dB or a half a dB or something like that. And suddenly it was like the entire mix went away. Hmm. And it was about five in the morning. And I think we were kept working on it. And we both fell asleep on the console. And we, <laughs> really? like, we both woke up an hour later, like, and we kind of kept up, and so it took just hours to get it back to where it had the same feeling. Oh, what I, if you what if you had fallen asleep on the console, and then when you woke up, like everything that your head had, all the buttons your head had pressed, had made it sound awesome, and you were like, "Oh my god!" Yeah, yeah. Well, that would have been, been better. Would have oh, been a better story. You're like, yeah. wow, it's not 1985 <laughs> with uh, cocaine anymore. We're falling yeah. asleep on the yeah. boards. Well, look, um, uh, we have to take a break, uh, another break, if that's okay, uh, Jerry. Uh, we're going to take another break, and when we come back, we will continue our discussion about Stop Making Sense. This is Slippery People from Stop Making Sense, of course. We'll be right back with more Jerry Harrison after this. Welcome back. You talking talking heads to my talking head. We are here with Jerry Harrison of Talking Heads, and uh, we're talking about Stop Making Sense. And uh, we have a few, uh, 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 shall we say, rapid-fire questions. This is our okay. rapid-fire question. Uh, whose idea was it to come out one at a time? David's. David's. And was that based on a, a theater production he had seen, or was that just a, an idea... I think it was building on the idea that we had done, starting with the Remain in Light tour of the band. Back then, it was sort of PM of the four of us and then people being added as needed. 
right. and just sort of taking lo- what's the logical extension of that. How did it feel coming out fourth? Did you ever say like, eh, can I come out second? Would that be would that be okay? I think it was in the order of the people who joined the band. It was. So, yeah. And I think it's also David wanted a completely naked stage when he walked out. Mm-hmm. And so having it, it just being David in the boombox, it could do that. It also made sense on Heaven for it to just be uh, acoustic guitar and a bass just for, you know, it, it was kind of a nice way to to creep into the songs. Right. Actually, Chris joined the band before Tina, so there is a mix-up there. But there's also Lynn Mabry is singing background vocals right. off stage on on Heaven. So this this idea that you came out fourth because you joined the band fourth that's not that's just just kind of what they told you in order no, to make it go no down one, easier. <laughs> no one talked about it, but I mean, uh, well, I don't think I think no. it made I think it made sense just the way it was. Um, did, did you feel was like the, the uh, Did you feel like the 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 person who joined the band uh, last throughout the career of Talking Heads, or at a certain point, did you feel like, oh no, we are a foursome, I'm not the new person anymore? Did that ever go away? I felt that they were very embracing, so therefore I felt like a complete member of the band. But you never take away the history that people have together and a certain a certain kind of connection. But on the other hand, then, you know, I also had the freedom to develop, you might say, my own relationship with each person in the band that was not, didn't include going to RISD together and didn't include all of these things. And David, you know, David and I shared a room for a couple of years. I was probably, that's probably the closest I was, was to him. So is David the person that you felt closest to in the band overall, or did it kind of change per year? Well, I had lived at Chris and Tina's loft for when I first moved down to New York, because I'd been moving, I'd been living in Cambridge. So took me a, a little bit of time where I actually got my own place. So there was, you know, I felt really close to them as well. And that was also where we rehearsed. And so, I don't know. I felt like I had a, a tight relationship with each person in the band. I mean, Chris and Tina, by being a married couple, there's a little bit of like, you can never penetrate the joint, you know, thing yeah. that is that is the Chris and Tina couple. Did you view Chris and Tina as sort of like a voting block? Okay, so this happens in 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 reality shows like Survivor where when people pair up, mm-hmm. people want to split them up because they're always going to vote together. And in in Monty Python, you had two writing teams uh of, you know, John Cleese and 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 Terry uh Terry Jones were together and but but then you had Eric Idle who was didn't have a partner and so he felt like he was always being outvoted. Was there ever mm-hmm. a thing of like, well Chris and Tina are always gonna agree, so uh did you and David try to team up because of that or were there any kind of internal politics like that? Of course. Yes, there was it did it was not a hundred percent of the time that they would vote the same. But it was certainly more than 90%. And because <laughs> they would have pre-discussed something. Sure. Right. And that was frustrating because sort of the best that David and I could do was tie. <laughs> right. I brought this up early in the band. I made the suggestion that since David was the main songwriter, maybe he should get two votes cause, so that we'd have an odd number. Right. But then wouldn't that make, that would make you the tiebreaker all the time. 
Well, you see, I was the only one who understood that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that I was actually giving myself more right. power. That's what I Eric said. Idle ended up being in Monty Python is is he would yeah. always be the one to vote uh, which way everything went because he was the solo person. Very smart. Right. Very smart. But it, 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 they didn't go along with it. <laughs> Do you feel like bands like, uh, again, with our previous bands, we've focused on U2 and R.E.M. making the decision early on to share all songwriting credit from the very beginning, mm -hmm. no matter who writes the songs. Do you see that as a wise decision as far as keeping a band together? Well, I certainly think that All for One and One for All certainly is a very, uh, you know, it's, I just watched this documentary that J Jim Jarmusch made about Iggy, and he was talking about how the Stooges were a communist band, so they had to <laughs> split things evenly. I mean, Talking Heads wasn't like that. David... And I think that Seymour Stein was involved with this, too, is that when they signed to Sire, David and Seymour had a publishing company called Index Music. And with Seymour being the uh, administrator, and then we became si signed as, as, as uh, artists, so to speak, or writers to that. So we never, sh I, we never shared in the publishing. And, yeah, that, that had the potential to create... Uh, some tension. I also, when live, when I produced live, they shared everything evenly. And I remember right before throwing Copper, Ed feeling like he was doing all the work and going, this really isn't fair. So it can go the other way a lot of you times. You know, it's just really unfair. I, I remember having a conversation with Paul McGinnis, U2's longstanding manager about this. And I thought, I said, I kind of thought it was generous of... Uh, Bono to uh, to share everything and he goes, fuck that. No one would have ever heard any of Bono's songs if these guys hadn't sat in the basement and worked with him and, you know, made it so that he could realize the fact that he had the confidence and the talent to do this. So, I do think that it's implicit when individuals get the songwriting for them there to be competition on whose songs go on a record. And you see also in bands where the singer seems to have two or three times as much money as the rest of the band. And that can be, make you really resentful when you're on the road. Uh, we had a similar thing though. It was not about when we first started out, Gary Kerfurst, our manager found a, uh, a guy in Connecticut named Gary Schofield who had a studio, so he knew about mixing, but he also owned a van. And he had gotten this van because a friend of his had been stopped on the Connecticut thruway, and the policeman had shot him in the head. And so the van was just sitting in the parents' garage for years. And Gary finally went over and going, what are you going to do with that van? And he, they go, just take it. And... <laughs> Uh, so we hired Gary Schofield, including his van. And so it was a great deal for us. And, you know, he carried equipment and it was one other guy with him. It was the beginning of our very stripped down ver version. And we drove in a station wagon, but we'd go out to eat. And the rest of us were on these very tight per diems, we'll say, where it's like, I'll have a cheese sandwich or I'll have a hamburger, but nothing to drink. And... <laughs> Gary, Gary Schofield will go, I'll have the prime rib. And it was like, 
<laughs> you know, because he made much more of, than we did on right. each each week of touring. You know, so right. I, th I I do think I think of bands also as the the only successful communist art form, as well as bands. You've got multiple people to deal with things. I mean, I think that bands have also the advantage that rarely does a band make an artistic decision that is just so embarrassing later. I mean, you think of absolutely brilliant solo artists, say Prince, but the film Under the Cherry Moon is a completely embarrassing film. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean the I mean Purple Rain was great, but Under the Cherry Moon is like them being. What about Graffiti Bridge? Where do you land on that? Better than Under the Cherry Moon. Like, <laughs> sure. you know, I mean, I think that you Kiss, hate Under the Cherry Moon essentially. I, I think the song Kiss is an incredible song. Sure. But the idea of them being in the south of France as bon vivants, trying to sort of emulate uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald and and Zelda and. You know, is as as pictured in Tender as the Night is like, it's just preposterous, and <laughs> uh, you know, it's, and you see solo artists getting an idea in their head, and they're so surrounded by people who always usually don't want to say no, and in bands there's usually always someone, usually the drummer who goes like. <laughs> I'm not going to be in that video. I'm not going to do that. That's just that you look, you know, you look. Well, Chris, I look, and, like, an, I look like an idiot. Yeah, Chris, Chris talks about in his book about how uh, you were all offered to be in True Stories. And they offered Chris and Tina the part of uh, a pimp and a hoe. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he was like, eh, I, think, I think I'll pass on this. <laughs> and Well, that was an interesting thing. I think that we, I mean, first of all, we'd already started doing videos. And David, first of all, with Tony Basil and then with uh, Julia, I can't remember her last name, Phillips, I think, um, it did uh, speak on Speaking in Tongues, did Burning Down the House. Mm -hmm. And so when we got to Little Creatures, I remember saying to Gary Kerfers, David can't own all of our videos. So I said, tell Warner Brothers we need to do four videos. We... Uh, and each one of them, us is going to direct one. And he goes, they're never going to go for that. And I go, well, they're just telling them there's no album. We're not going to turn it in until they agree to it. And so he came back and he goes, I got you three. But you can only spend $40,000 each. And we had an interest also just to diverge. David, because he'd gotten so into videos, was starting to want to churn out so many videos that Warner Brothers got worried that David would spend too much money but they didn't want to say no so we i think we're the only band that owned its videos and leased them back to the record company that's smart yeah but it was because we scared them with how many we might do <laughs> but so going back to true stories we made the decision not to be actors in it because we we felt that it would undermine band dynamics to have david as the director of the film and us as actors him being in charge of you, essentially. Yeah, for a and of, of course, then. But when we went out to do the videos that are part of uh, that uh, for Wild Wild Life and Love for Sale, the the crew that had been on, on True Stories all came to us and going, "You guys were so great at these videos. Nah, Maybe we made a mistake. You should have been in the film." <laughs> but by that point, it was already it was already right. filmed. Yeah. You we're kind of talking about your dynamics within the band and you mentioned that you know after the no talking just had 
uh, Head's album, you were in a bad place with David, and then you got back together to do the the DVD, which I was watching the press conference uh, last night. It's, it's it seems kind of fraught with tension. It's it almost seems like you're in between Chris and Tina and and David, like you're sort of the buffer. Yeah, there's um, an element. There's an element of me being Switzerland in this. Right. In, 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 by this point of the band, yeah. Is is that? Um, I mean, how are your relationships with everyone now? They're fine. I mean, David and I don't talk to each other all the time, but you know, I'll call him up when I'm in New York. We'll have dinner, and he comes through San Francisco, and we get in touch. So it's it's perfectly cordial. I did an initiative to sort of do re-releases of Talking Heads t-shirts and some of our other merchandising and uh, worked with with both David and Chris and Tina, but more David had because he was touring at that point. So he had all these ideas about which tour, which t-shirt manufacturer to use right. and things like that. And also because I oversaw various things. I oversaw the mastering of Sand and the Vaseline. I oversaw... I did all of the remixes with E.T. that became the surround mixes of all of the Talking Heads albums. It's actually really wonderful in DVD audio. It's, it's right. The 5-1 mixes are amazing, but I had to get the approval of everybody else. So I was always in, I was in a position of, of I felt of sort of, there was new technology in places for the the art that we had done to be reformatted and come out again. And I was the one who usually took on those tasks, but that put me in a position of having to coordinate things between everybody. Did you ever, did you get a chance to see the American Utopia on Broadway show? Did you? I did not see it on Broadway. I saw it when it was here in San Francisco before he went to Broadway. And I happened to be in uh, New York the first month it came out, but I'm well aware of what a pain in the ass it is is when you're playing in your hometown to get tickets for all the people that are asking. Right. But, I mean, you wrote a lot of those songs. That's, that's, yes, I did. I did. And there, there was, there's always, I can't say that when it's going down that it, it would be nice to be credited that I'm there. Right. But, uh, you know, I think that this is the most successful version of playing Talking Head songs David has done so far. Right. And it's obviously really beautiful. And the lighting is incredible and the choreographed movements are incredible. Uh, I, in a way, it goes back to the earlier version of Talking Heads is that you were so aware of it as an art piece, I think. But I, but because of that dynamic, it doesn't have the free flowing joy that. Stop making sense has, where I guess every every you know you might say that the performers have a little bit more freedom to just be themselves. That is one thing about stop making sense. Just watching it again, that really struck me, and and was it was actually moving watching the movie. Just the joy and the life that's just kind yeah. of bursting from this movie. Everyone that, seems like they're just having so much yeah. fun, and that uh, that actually that 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 brings me to. Uh, some questions that I uh, I wanted uh, a previous guest who was on uh, our episode where we were talking about Remain in Light. Right. Her, her name is Tawny Newsom, and she's uh, currently in the Steve Carell show Space Force, as well as uh, Star Ooh. Trek Lower Decks. She's a Talking Heads super fan, and she um, was actually in a uh, Talking Heads cover band is that, right? um, that started out as uh, uh, a Stop Making Sense recreation. 
and uh, she she is one of the singers in it. And she had she she uh, was kind enough to, to record questions for you, if you wouldn't mind answering. And these are very very okay. specific. And the, and the first one, you'll see why I segued to it because it's about uh, the fun that you guys are having. But uh, let's hear uh, Tawny ask these questions for Jerry. Hi, Jerry Harrison. I have a question about the move that you do in Stop Making Sense during Burning Down the House. I can only describe the move as bounce, 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 jump. Yep. And then you go to the other side, bounce, 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 jump. I want to know who came up with that move. Thank you. I think David had worked with a choreographer in the beginning and he had ideas. And then it was someone who was, when we were doing rehearsals, who uh, was sort of looking from off stage and then them talking. And so the idea was that everybody on stage would do the same thing at certain points. And, you know, uh, I don't think that, you know, of course, when David goes into his sort of Shiva move where he's like moving his arms like this, we, he did, that didn't get picked up by everybody else. So there was a decision. Right. <laughs> there was a decision to. Uh, there were certain things that you guys all wanted to do together, like running in place during life during that's right. time. But yeah. right. Yeah. Here's question number two from Tani. And this is about you guys having fun, I believe. I want to know who was having the most fun during Stop Making Sense, because from uh, the looks on everyone's faces, I think it's a tie between Alex Weir and Edna Holt because their mm. mouths were open throughout the entirety of the film in just just bliss and joy. Hmm. Well, I think you might have to include Steve Scales in that. Yeah, the, I, yeah the, definitely. The joy scale, because I don't think there's ever been a percussionist who's been given more freedom. He comes down stage and yells in the microphone <laughs> yeah. and yeah. sings out of tune uh, uh, <laughs> along with the background singers and just basically just has... But he has such wonderful energy and it almost makes me feel like you know the version of swamp that's in uh stop making sense when you hear the version on uh uh speaking in tongues i miss the little shoutings hey, yeah. hey, like well, all that stuff well, it feels yeah. like it feels like that's the iconic version you know yeah it was a it just became a party tani has one more question uh let's hear this one okay and then my last question is um I was in a Talking Heads tribute band. That's where I fell in love with your music. Um, the band that I was in once fired our percussionist for eating a cheeseburger on stage. Was that something Steve Scales would have ever done? And would you have ever fired him for that or a similar offense? Thank you. I don't think we would have fired him, but I think that... That sounds like something you should get a promotion for. <laughs> yeah, I think that everybody... There was too much running around and too much energy to go to think about eating. Yeah, it's it's funny. Well, you mentioned Steve Scales having the most joy, and he gets so many shots in the movie. Like the camera is always cutting to him because he's always making faces. He's always yeah. like jumping up and down. And it, like at a certain point, I'm like, this guy, he he's a, a canny guy who, who like really understood. Like the more I move around, the more yep. yeah, the more the camera will cut to me. Yeah, actually, he actually went off and. Uh, I introduced him to Vicky Wickham, who managed Nona Hendricks, and Nona Hendricks and I were old friends. And he ended up being in Tina Turner's band for a few years. Oh wow! So he got he got to have a lot of fun. He he just fit the bill. I mean, partially because Chris was such a disciplined drummer and did not want to fill up every space with a fill and things like this. There was a lot of room for Steve to be there. 
I think a lot of other drummers would have resented it a little bit more or it would have been, but he was, you know, you know, just the tom-tom rolls and burning down the house or something like that. You know, they're working as a team. Yeah. And I know that one of the things I was going to get to is that I remember when I was assigning some of the parts to people, and David was part of this, is that David sometimes wanted the freedom to be concentrated on singing or on dancing. And I know that I gave, didn't always take on, you might say, the most fun or coolest parts. I sometimes would have Bernie play them. Bernie, of course, was just one of the most incredible keyboard players of all time. Also, is a better player than me. But beyond that, it was also, we want to keep these people excited about being on in the show. We're not going to we're not going to hog all the good parts all the and fun parts, yeah, and have them play the the uh, the skeleton parts, the, the other yeah. parts. And I and and I, you know, whenever we performed, like I mentioned, being in the dark, but I always thought that the victory of the whole gestalt of the band, because I had put it together, was my victory. And so it was okay that if I individually didn't seem as in every shot or so so lit and so forward that there was pl- that I got plenty of attention and that you know everyone everyone's success was my success as well well it's great to see you know you subverting your ego for the good of the project and i think that's when you watch stop making sense it really seems like it's a group of of people and it 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 you know it is the way that Adam and I came to see Talking Heads and so much was written about David being, you know, the front man and him be, being in the big suit um, that that could overshadow it. But when you watch the film, it just is the work of of a group of people so much yes. so, including the crew and the, the crew comes out at the end and takes a bow. Yeah. Um, you don't see that usually in, in rock shows. Um, it really is just a, a, a joyous uh, telling of what a group of people were able to put together. Well, I think it was absolutely a team effort to make it work every night. And, uh, you know, it was, I really felt that we had become the best band in the world at that point. I live. wouldn't disagree. Yeah, I don't think we would disagree. I was yeah. very disappointed that David was so wrapped up in trying to think about true stories that we turned down playing at Live Aid. Because I think that we would have killed it. You could oh, have yeah. been, uh, you could have been like Queen, you know. I mean, and I also think that you see that, in particular, you two and Peter Gabriel's careers took off after Live Aid, and I just thought we would have been a great addition to that show, and especially with uh, the integrated band that you had, yes, um, which was so much uh, uh, featured people of color, uh, so much more than than the English. And yes. of Live Aid did, um, which was all essentially like people like, you know, Adamant and Duran Duran and Spandau Ballet. Well, you know, they also, those bands somewhat copied us and started adding background singers. In fact, the right. police stole some of our background singers from Right, us. yeah, Dillette McDonald is on uh, the Bring on the Night movie, which, that's right. you know, that's is right. not as good as Stop Making Sense. That's, that's, that's true. Uh, you know? They're a great band, but they couldn't measure up quite. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jerry, this has been uh, really incredible. We really appreciate you coming on here and, and talking with us about uh, all of this. Uh, is there, I know, I know uh, 1% chance probably never will happen, but will Talking Heads ever reunite and play again, do you think? 
I'm certainly not holding my breath. Yeah. Um, and I think that um, David's recent success on Broadway, I, I don't think that he, I think that for a while, Stop Making Sense so perfectly captured Talking Heads that I think that David may have had in his mind, I don't want to mess with this, this peak that we hit. And, you know, he was perfectly fine with, you know, going out and doing a record of Brazilian music because it was such a excursion to in another direction that it, it would never be competition. But of course, over the years, he's come back to, you know, adding more and more Talking Head songs to his shows. And then his shows have gotten to be in larger theaters and to be more successful. And this one being the sort of ultimate of that. Right. Well, Jerry, this is, has been amazing. Uh, we really appreciate it. Adam, any uh, final final words you want to say? Just real quick, do you have your favorite Talking Heads record, if you can pick a favorite? I don't know if that's even possible. Well, I always say two, and the two are Remain in Light and, and, and uh, Fear of Music. And to me, Remain in Light revolutionized how people were thinking about music and allowed for uh, – it to go in a lot of other directions that it had not been going in. It, it all the layering of parts and the uh, interplay of, of, of parts. And I thought that fear of music to a certain degree was the sort of ultimate culmination of us as a four piece. Cool. Fantastic. Um, before we go, I, I just have to ask what it was like working with Bob Dylan and Tom Petty and Roy Orbison in the Traveling Wilburys is that was that a thrill uh, to be with those rock legends uh, I mean you're but look you're a Beatle so some would say that you are, are a bigger legend than them but uh, how did you feel doing that well I you know they were friends it was just sort of like going over to someone's house and yeah. uh, you know and then uh, I thought it gave a big boost to Tom Petty's career yeah sure did Certainly. (laughs) Put him back on the map. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, uh, George, Jerry, we really want to thank you. This this has been so awesome for you to come on to our little show and talk about uh, uh, what is one of the more important records in in both of our lives. Uh, We really appreciate it. I hope you had fun. I did. I did. Fantastic. We are going to wrap it up for this episode. We will see you next time. Uh, and, uh, until then, you know, we, uh, certainly hope that you have found what you're looking for. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.